my fellow Westorians. Happy Sunday. Welcome back to the pod. We had a little time off there, but we won't have much off going forward. We only have one week off scheduled for the next like three and a half months. So you can expect maybe a tweak to the schedule here and there, but we should be going strong for several months with only one, maybe one more break or two more breaks in there. So lots to come. We'll kick it off this this long stretch with this description of this convention we went to. Not the convention itself so much as what we learned at it and all the great details about characters mostly and on other things too. Sean and Ashea and I all went and we got to see a lot of friends there. And it was it was a lot of fun. We didn't expect to do more than just a little bit of reporting on it. You know, we wouldn't go to a convention and say nothing. But we did not expect to have a whole episode's worth of things to talk about. So that was a surprise. We didn't prepare for that, but it we rolled with it. And here we are. Sean, was that kind of how you went into the con as well? You didn't expect we'd have a whole lot to say about it? Or did you have a different kind of approach or, or mindset about it? I suppose I didn't think about it actively. Maybe I should have because I, I feel in retrospect, like, of course, we're going to have an episode for <laughs> <laughs> this stuff to talk about. Yeah, I'll say I was surprised to hear as he say that because I assumed we would do an episode on it. That was the whole point of going to the convention mm-hmm. to me was to see West Coast fans, get material to talk about, maybe make some connections and network. Like there was a few things I wanted to do at the convention. And I think it was a success. Yeah, it definitely was a success. I just think a lot of those things aren't things we normally talk about. Like some of the things we, we don't have like a whole episode where to go on like we we never did a full we've only done one full episode on an ice and fire con i think yeah it's just not gonna they they don't have official people talking about the material yeah that's true maybe i should have realized it because i mean the one time we did talk about spent a lot of time talking about ice and fire con was when david peterson was there and so there was a lot of information that was very relevant to show and books and here it's the same thing so maybe i should have expected it because there were planned to have 12 of the actors there that's a lot. It actually turned out to only be 11 because Isaac Hempstead Wright, aka Bran, lost his passport. Which <laughs> just like, I don't know, something about that's very Bran, right? Like, he couldn't get there. <laughs> Hodor wasn't there to carry him, so he couldn't get there. His passport is, that's code for Hodor. And Christian Nairn was there as well. So it was all Bran, Hodor without Bran. But what are you going to do? Man forgets his passport. Live, I think. Yeah, <laughs> he'll just keep on living without, in England. Hodor without a brand will live. Yeah, he'll just keep going. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. What does the first ever official Game of Thrones House of the Dragon convention actually mean? We've been to plenty of conventions, we've reported on conventions before. What's official about it and why is this first ever? What separates it from these other things? Well, the difference is that. Almost every convention we've been to before was mostly book or half book, half show, or some combination of the two. This was all show, and it was also official because it was sponsored by HBO. HBO didn't run it directly, but they sponsored it, and that was part of, presumably part of why they were able to attach so much 
show talent to it, as well as the hosts being Jason Concepcion and Greta Johnson from the official House of the Dragon podcast, which is, is a quality program. Presumably why it was limited to that also. Yes, <laughs> I can imagine as they, well. Yeah. yeah, good point. So Sean, you came back slightly scathed. Some folks may have noticed that you're drinking tea instead of your usual, your beverage of choice, your usual fruity, strange colored mixture of stuff. Cacophony of flavors has given way to something more herbal, eh? Uh, just a hot tea, a licorice flavored tea, by the way. You would licorice. choose licorice. Yeah. <laughs> the <I know>. nastiest <laughs> of teas. <laughs> But yeah, if we had done this in the, I don't know, day before yesterday, I don't know if I could have done it. I was, whew, I was really knocked out. I, I, fortunately, it didn't really hit me until like the day after we got back and uh, just knocked me out over a couple of days. But yeah, Shay got happy to be too, well huh? enough to. Yes. Yeah. yeah I'm it a little was... subdued today because I'm still getting over it. I maybe feel 90, 95%. I was very worried. I got COVID, but tested negative multiple times. But you can still get normal sick. And I got normal sick. And then Sean got normal sick as well, which is not fun, no matter, even if it isn't COVID. So, you know. I'll tell you, I, I, you know, when I did have COVID a year ago or whatever, I'm more sick now than I was for that. Mm. So, I don't know, there's some value to masks beyond COVID, I think. <laughs> yeah, maybe just your body was, yeah, preloaded for it now in a bad way, having had, yeah. Mm, no fun at all. You're right. And, and we were in a pretty big group and a few other people got sick. Uh, our friend Kyle Foster did actually get COVID there. And so far, it seems like he was the only one, which just more COVID being random, but plenty of people got sick. That, that's the risk of, of conventions, I suppose. We have lots of details. We're going to talk about each of the actor panels, some more than others. We're going to really focus on the House of the Dragon one more than the Game of Thrones stuff, but we'll we'll mix in the Game of Thrones stuff as well. The full list of characters slash actors there was Alfie Allen, Theon, Kit Harrington, Jon Snow, Esme Bianco, Roz, Daniel Portman, Podrick, Christopher Hivju, Tormund, Jack Gleason, Joffrey, Christian Nairn, Hodor. Like I said, there was no Isaac Hempstead Wright, though he was planned. Tom Glenn Carney, Aegon II, Steve Toussaint, Corlys, Matthew Needham, Laris, and Patty Considine, Viserys. They also did some combos. Like, it wasn't all one-offs. Steve and Matthew did one together. Steve and Patty and Theon, Alfie did one together. They did a, one that was really cool called the Young Kings panel. That was Joffrey and Aegon. That was particularly entertaining. It was supposed to have Isaac Hempstead Wright, yeah. Young King Bran <laughs> on it as well. King. So he obviously couldn't come. But I think it was a good pairing, the two of those two kings. Yeah, those two have more in common than they did with Bran as far as their characters. I don't know about like as human beings. I have yeah. no idea. But yeah, they, they were a great pairing. So that worked out really well. There was also supposed to be a Bran Hodor panel apparently but that didn't happen and yeah it was it was great to see the crowd's reaction it was great to see the actors rehash things that they had done a long time ago in the case of game of thrones or in the case of house of dragon stuff they've just they're just getting into we got a lot of great photos we documented it pretty well i think ashea in particular took a lot of great photos me and sean kicked in a few as well and we hung out with some great people. I mentioned Kyle Foster. There's our friend Eric Kluth, a.k.a. Blackfire, the first person ever to be nicknamed Blackfire. He got the name from George before George made it public. So that makes him very OG as far as these things go. <laughs> we got to hang out with Kyle Maddock of a podcast of Ice and Fire fame. We got to hang out with Kim Renfro from Insider Mag. She's great. We, we spent a lot of time with her. Swap stories. Draft OG. You've seen his art on our show before. That was good times. Stay tuned and we'll get into this actor stuff. 
Really surprising how many great character takes they were. I said, I think this is probably where Shay was coming from, which is like, I expected us to do an episode on this. I don't know what mm-hmm. you're talking about, Aziz. She was right. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, the House of the Dragon stuff alone was really interesting to me. And then people really care about the Kit Harrington snow show yeah. stuff. Like, there's just a number of things, but I was very excited about the House of the Dragon cast because it's their first, you know, big panel appearance. Yeah, that's really important too, because I guess I just kind of downplay how much in the past I've downplayed how much value the actors have to say about their characters. But that's a real shortcoming on my part because they really have to get in these characters' heads and really think about what makes them do what they do and motivate them and sometimes even create little bits of backstory or work out backstory among the cast when for things that are missing. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, like the, the writers have to think about an entire cast of characters, but the actors really just have to think about their own character. So yeah, you're right. And, and that enables them to focus on it more, right? Like a really good writer is still going to miss a few things, right? About like the nuance within a character even even in an adaptation scenario like this. So a lot of times the actors really fill out that nuance, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, Emily Carey writing a journal to take notes on her character or just someone like Patty Considine who does it more stream of consciousness and just really tries to act from an emotional perspective. So there's a lot of different methods here, but they're all very informative. And I think not just from the also, character perspectives, but just from their actor process, which is some things we don't know so, that well. It's also worth noting sometimes actors get good direction from the showrunner, writer, director, whoever they're working with. Like one great example is Steve Toussaint said that he and Eve Best asked about their relationship, asked Ryan Condal, are we are an arranged marriage or are we really in love? And he said, really in love. So that's like a, an interesting insight that we got there, that, that actor was able to bring to us. Yeah, we would never would have known that otherwise. And Steve Toussaint, yeah, that's a great example, Sean, because Steve even said, like, that was like the first thing he really locked into with this character. Like, okay, so my wife and I, we really love each other. Build from there, right? That he thought that was a really core element to build around, or the first core element he had to lock into besides very basic details about what this character has accomplished in his life, which doesn't necessarily tell you that much about his personality. Only tells you a few things. Like you could tell that he's ambitious and a self-starter from all his voyaging and all that. But like, is he cruel? Is he kind? Is he... Yeah, all these other things you can't really learn just from that. In this fandom, we you want to learn. You want to get close to things. You know, this community, I think, is strong enough that we don't want to just learn a thing or two and then move on. We want to really get to know something. I listen to a lot of podcasts myself. And I know that at, some, at a certain point, you start to feel like you know the podcaster, even though you've never met them in, real, in person. And I've had people say that to us as well on the other end of it. So I kind of experience both sides. But I think it's a little similar for the actors. They're more detached. They have to protect themselves from the public more than, more than say, we do. But there's a little bit of overlap there in, that, that gives us a little bit of insight. And so some of them are highly intelligent. Getting through this process implies some things about them. And maybe I didn't give them enough credit for that in the past. Trivia question. Just because we're not doing a deep dive on a specific book topic today doesn't mean I couldn't include a trivia question. How many men does John think Castle Black once held at maximum? He had a number that he thought Castle Black once had when it peaked. Of course, it's nowhere near that point when he's there, but he still thinks of that number. I'll reveal it at the end, as usual. In addition to the actors being there, we also got a virtual panel from Ryan Condal, which was pretty interesting. It included a deleted scene, some more insider takes, some good stuff, basically, and some updates on season two. Nothing too specific, but stuff you'll want to hear. We also heard from Raman Jawadi, the, of course, the 
fantastic composer for Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon. Nothing really to report there. His, his presentation was very, well, it was musical, and it's harder to you know, impart that through a podcast. But there's lots of videos out there of him and interviews that contain similar stuff. So if you've never listened to him talk, you should check it out. Let's start with the Young Kings panel. We'll talk about the two individually and them together, meaning Tom Glenn Carney, a.k.a. Egg on the second, and Joffrey, Jack Gleason. Very cool. Here's a good example of an actor who had a pretty big impact on the character and how he was portrayed that didn't come from the showrunners. They discussed what type of person he would be, what type of character he would be, what he would look like. And Dom suggested he would be unwashed, not very concerned with his appearance. Libertine. Libertine. You're right. He used this phrase libertine. And you can see that. Like, yeah, that is, that does describe him pretty well, especially for a royal, for a king. He's a little unkempt. (laughs) It's true. The thing that stuck out to me was that he, they had started off with a wig for him that was like to his waist, kind of more like the Amond wig. Like past his waist was how long the wig was originally. And he pushed for them to make it shorter and shorter. And so they cut it off just one inch at a time because once you cut it, it's not going to grow back. (laughs) So they just like kept seeing how short they could go. And I think it fits his character very well for him to to have the shorter hair. He doesn't prize his Targaryen-ness as much. It just makes so much sense to me. Yeah, it makes sense too because of his lack of acceptance by his own father, which is the Targaryen part of his family. His mother's around him a lot. You know, my question is these. What's that? A lot of people have for a long time been headcanoning Daron as having short hair. But after this, I'm starting to think like Daron might have the long... I'm super curious what they're going to do with the younger brother. Because as you know, you show only viewers are somewhat aware there is another Targaryen brother who's in Old Town and... Well, he could have any number of lengths of hair, apparently. Yeah, it's even possible he doesn't have hair Targaryen colored hair, <laughs> but I would be surprised if he doesn't yeah, have no, that. Yeah, no, he's least, got but. to. That would that would blow up the strong thing. You know, yeah. I, he has to have Targ hair, but I could see it being like kind of a more of a high tower, like shorter auto short look. I don't know. Being unsullied, I don't know what his character's like, but I can imagine him wanting to represent his Targaryen side and make sure his hair is long. Or I can imagine him, if he's being raised somewhere else, raised in old Targaryens, town. conforming to their standards yeah. and having a shortcut or whatever else. Exactly. Like he's like book version of him is a little bit courtly. He's raised as a squire to the Lord of Old Town, which is Otto's brother. I'll say. Brother. You know what would be really cool, Shay? We hadn't thought about this. If they did like a, a Baylor, a Breakspear kind of thing or his sons or a Dark Star thing where he actually has multicolored hair. Yeah, I, I personally would love it if they did that, but I don't think the TV yeah. show will go that extreme. I don't either, but I would um, love to see it. <laughs> but yeah, I would say that probably like 80 or 90% of the dare on the daring art that I see online, he has quite short hair. Okay. So like it if does, they at all yeah. look at the art that exists already and, and model it after that, then they're likely to go with pretty short. That's probably where my headcanon lands for him, but obviously that's has no bearing on <laughs> what's going on. Yeah, it makes me wonder why do we all headcanon Daron as having such short hair? Because like it has such significance, the very idea that they chose that for Aegon. I'm like, whoa. Hmm. I think it's the old town connection. But yeah, yeah, I, I think know. I think so too. <laughs> Spoiler alert, Daron the Daring, huh? Oh, Oops. We, we revealed his nickname. Yeah, yeah, he is daring. <laughs> yeah, now I know he's daring. He's daring. <laughs> he might not actually be daring. Think about it, like sometimes there's nicknames where like they're actually like very cowardly. Yeah, yeah he's and little people Kevin. Call them yeah. like 
Yeah. yeah. Actually, you don't know anything, Sean. Still, I will say. Big Walter and daring Darren. Yeah, yeah, that's right. yeah exactly. yes, he might be a be coward. <laughs> Back to Tom, he said, Aegon is, he recognizes, of course, that Aegon is a bad person, but he enjoys the nuance that he's not just a straightforward, cruel psycho. He has levels to his awfulness. It's not just, it's not straightforward. I think a lot of times, I just wanted to say on that, by the way, there are a lot of times that you, it's not a justification for the character right. or the actions or morality or whatever, but it's an understanding, yeah. right? Like he's not necessarily saying it's okay for Aegon to be this way, but we understand why he's this way. He's not just randomly evil. There are these trials he's gone through in his life, these you know, parenting struggles and absences and expectations and abuses even, et cetera. So. Yeah, it's like, a, it's like a why is he like this question. You know, that, that has value to like making yeah. sure other people don't come out that way or at least understanding why they might have those tendencies. Like someone who's like Aegon, but 10 times milder, like doesn't rape women, but might be a little too pushy. So he's still yeah. bad, but not nearly as bad. It might come from well, some of the I, same upbringing styles, but with less pressure or whatever. You know, I really appreciated as Tom talked a bit about how you know, if you play a character, you usually want to find the root co emotional core in them and that makes them actually playable to you because how can you play someone that you can't like at all? And for That's him, it's the fact that Aegon is oblivious. He's an oblivious lecher. Like, he's not maliciously raping women. He is just so privileged and so, you know, coddled by his mother and by his family that he doesn't really realize what he's doing is this messed up. And so that's kind of the core that, that he can hold on to and not be like, oh, I'm just playing a terrible rapist of a man. Which, yeah. like, obviously, like, someone... I'm sure Jack Gleason playing like Joffrey or something like that. Even him, he can, there are like, people say like, oh, Joffrey's terrible. But like, you, you still see like his, his root core that could make you understand him. Even if you think that he's genetically predisposed to being a psychopath or whatever. There's still things that fuel it or could have tamped it back a bit. Like yeah, exactly. If, if, and like that's good parenting true could for, have reduced Joffrey's natural psycho or whatever. Whereas the parenting he got actually made it more a part of him, you know, enhanced it. One other mm, element to consider is if there's hope for change of any kind, you need to understand the cause too. That's, so a very that's another value yeah. to understanding motivations for a character is if there's a, not maybe just that character, but, you know, people in the world, you know. So along those lines, he says that he, he really wanted, his character really wanted to believe that Viserys wanted him to be king. That when his mother was telling him the stuff about the deathbed stuff, he's like, he had a hard time believing it because it does seem so convenient and perfect. But he wanted to believe it because he wanted his father to see him that way. His the inner child yearned for that acceptance. It, it was kind of similar to what we said in terms of the, the moment where the crowd is cheering for him. This was a part that he talked about a good bit. He called it an injection of validation. Which I think is a really good way to phrase it. That's kind of what we were saying, but not quite so succinctly, I don't think. I don't recall exactly what we said, but it was like that. He's never felt like that. We said something about how the crowd loved him, and it was like he never felt this sort of love before or acceptance all at once. And he didn't even see it coming until he turned around and the crowd's cheering for him. And, he started, and he's really started to get into it. And he's like, yeah. And I'll note here, this was Sean's question. Sean asked him about what Aegon felt in that moment. And Sean can elaborate on that. But yeah, go for I it, Sean. He, tell he, us what he, you thought. He focused on the auto part of it too, right? Yeah. I, by the way, I posted this on Twitter so you can actually see the little video clip. But, but yeah, I asked, you know, I kind of maybe like 
fed him a lot of information as part of my question, setting up the stage because there was, you know, he's like writing in with Allison, still not really even believing this is about to happen. You know, he seems almost in denial about the idea of it. And I, I almost wish I'd asked him what he thought was about to happen, you know, <laughs> uh, but, you know, he's being set up to accept it when she gives him the dagger and he's, you know, maybe starting to swallow this pill, you know, because he kind of like a lot of the audience, we don't quite believe Allison. Again, I haven't read the books, but I, I, I get the feeling that people who read the books are just n- kind of not accepting this little slice of the show. <laughs> but in the show, Allison really believes that Viserys is telling her that he wants Aegon. You know, she, she's mistaken and maybe she's hearing what she wants to, but she really believes it. She's not like, manipulating things or something, right. you know, I, I don't think particularly. It comes off as, um, he thinks he's being manipulated, but we right. think that she's yeah. being sincere. And, and I, I yeah, right. yeah. So he's trying to accept what Allison's telling him. And then he's going through this sort of process with all like the guards walking him through the crowd and everyone's assembled. And when I was watching it, I felt like what was clicking in his brain was when he saw all his family members, including Otto, kind of bow to him. You know, is that that that's sort of like legitimizing this slash making him realize the power he's really about to get, you get here. You can tell them what to do now. They've been telling you yeah. what to do, but now... <laughs> they don't get to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> but then you go add to that, you turn from that to this crowd cheering you on and raise your sword. So I kind of led my question with that background and asked him, you know, what do you think was affecting him more? The power he's realizing as over his family or the crowd? And he said both you're answering your own question it was both those reasons so. <laughs> that's great yeah i think that's yeah. awesome and and it, it also really i notice how well that fits with the rest of what we just said about him he is oblivious to the harm he was causing to like the serving girls and to having children out of wedlock and just having bastards he was asked about that he's like is he aware of the he has he's like I'm sure he's aware on some level, but he doesn't really think about it. Because this is a oblivious privilege, like Ashea said. He doesn't think about these things because he doesn't have to. He doesn't, he hasn't learned to, he hasn't valued he hasn't, that. So he hasn't also thought about these other things. He hasn't thought about what he's going to be like when he's king. He hasn't thought about the fact that, oh, he gets to tell them what to do. He's oblivious to not just his the harm to other people, but to himself. He hasn't faced consequences for his bad decisions. That too, very and so. If he were to think about the idea of how the bastards out there might affect his own power, if he were to think about that, he might start to be a little worried. But he yes. doesn't even think about it. And he's it. lazy, right? Which it? that yeah. fits with his being unwashed uh, and yeah. unkempt. He, he, he's not just lazy with his physical actions, but with his thinking. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and it's important, too, to note that none of, none of Allison's children have a good relationship with Viserys. They all have a very detached relationship and... Patty goes into why that is. He loved Emma, didn't really love Allison. He was fond of her. He valued her, but he didn't have that same connection. So he also wasn't as, he also didn't value the children he produced with her as much because Rainier came from Emma and that's the thing he was holding on to. That's the thing he went through his whole life torturing himself over and believing he had done wrong and all this other stuff. Tom said that the banquet scene, that great banquet scene, took two weeks to film. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> Dang. He's also a huge fan of dogs. Tom is. He brought his service dog with him from England. So that's cool. Another, one and fan- gets to bring him onto the set. Oh, yeah. He brings him onto the set, too. That's really cool. Yeah, he's a huge fan of dogs. Really big. So much so that a fan got up to ask him a question. And hey, they had their service dog with. And Tom just like... Started talking to the dog. He's like, oh, good boy. Hey, that's... A, you know, it was really cool. Do you He's remember very, his dog's name? I don't. 
It's Ziggy after a Ziggy Stardust. Ziggy Stardust. That's yeah, right. I remember. T- I remember texting fan. Nina that because Nina's a big David Bowie fan. But I forgot. Just on the spot when you asked me, I was like, No, I don't remember. And so someone asked him, "What was the what's the first thing you would do if you were king? Not Aegon, but if Tom Glenn Carney was king?" And he said, "Rescue all the stray dogs." That would be his first act as king. So another person who's very much the opposite of their character. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a very sensitive, thoughtful man. Not a <laughs> not not an Aegon who doesn't think about anyone. Who's totally oblivious. Jason Concepcion asked Tom, "Would any of the other characters actually be a good ruler?" He thought about it for about three seconds and said, "No." People yelled, Amen, Amen at him. Yeah. And he was like, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> but then he said, but maybe Helena. She wouldn't last 10 minutes, but I'd like to see it. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. He has been loving the overwhelming response from fans and critics. Like he's a, a shy, introverted guy. Like a lot of these actors we've learned are introverts. There's one notable exception, which we'll get to, but he describes himself as an introvert. A lot of the others did as well, but he likes the fact that the response is so positive makes it easier for him because he has anxiety about his performance. You know, the fact that it's so glowing and praiseworthy, very little criticism makes that easier, but, but not easy. He had worked with Alfie Allen before and got advice from Alfie Allen. That's Theon, of course. He said, Alfie told him, just enjoy it. It's a huge machine Get swept up in it. Just allow it to take you over and, and just do that. And he told him, look, this is a special show. If House of the Dragon is at all similar to Game of Thrones, you're going to have a lot more leeway to develop your character than you would think for a show of this production, for this size, of this gravity. And that is true. That's something we've been hearing from all corners, from various places, from actors, from showrunners, that they do get a lot of room to, to make their character a little more of their own. Whether they're a newer actor, like we said, Emily Carey, we keep using her as an example because she is a little unique in that sense with her, with her journal and all that. But her method is very different than a lot of the others. And the fact that they allow them to do this is, I don't know, it gives me good, a good feeling. I, I like that they're part of the creative process. I don't really know what that entails day to day, but it sounds like a good thing. Doesn't it sound like a good thing to y'all? I think it sounds like a good thing. Some people hate it. I, I would say okay. it's not everyone agrees with that take. Okay. I frequently I see sense. people who do not like it when the actors take control of their character and they use it to blame them on it. And I don't uh, know. But I, I, I think what I said at the beginning of the episode is true. The writers have to think about the entire cast. The actor thinks about themselves. They have their character, you know, their their best interests at heart, usually. It feels like they're among the most qualified, if not the most qualified, other than, like, George R. R. Martin. Yeah, that's how I feel. I feel, but we would have to have someone on the podcast who feels the opposite way. Because I will say, there are people who are like, no, make the actors shut up and just (laughs) do their job and act and not give them their takes. Again... I'm yeah. not saying I feel that way, but it is a big enough contingent of people that I have to recognize that we are not necessarily even the majority. It might be pretty mixed. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, good point. Like, I, it's so hard for me to accept that view. I mean, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not I saying you're not wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong. I, I agree that view exists. It's like, but we've seen so many positive developments come from the actors and like that came from him or that came from her. Like, why would we want to shut yeah. that off? You know, I've seen from actors that opposite perspective too, though, by the Some way, they, they just want to do what they're told and stay in the lines and, and yeah, true. trust the vision of the director or whatever. Bob Odenkirk said that about Better Call Saul. Okay. Way. Well, that, I don't think he they're says forced he, to do that here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, he says that you have enough sort of little pressures on you that, you know, if you also feel pressure to be creative or 
concerns okay. over butting heads with the directors, things like that can get in the way of just do the job, you know. What the job is might be tough to define. I can appreciate that from where Bob but... Odenkirk is coming because this is from where he's coming from. Presumably, he's talking about something more like Better Call Saul than maybe some of his more minor roles, but maybe he's talking about them all. Yeah. But like with sort of like Better Call Saul, you're the main character on all the time. In an ensemble cast, there's so many characters. Yeah. It just kind of makes sense that there's more room for them to do that. But I get, where you, I, I see where Bob Odenkirk is coming from as well. And Patty Constantine made a note or made a comment similar to that. He said, a lot of times he sees it as a gig, like what you said. He just goes in, does his job, leaves. That's it. Almost nine to five style. You know, he's a veteran. He can do that. But he said during the table read, M- Miguel like really emphasized to him, this is your character. And, and it clicked. He said it clicked in his mind. He's like, okay. I have room to make my own decisions here, but he wasn't, he didn't approach it that way at first. And once he did, it started to really like flow and he started to have really good ideas. And we saw Patty Constantine had some really good improvisation, some really good, really good feel for the character. Because uh, as I said, he did it, he played him emotionally. Like, what would Viserys do? Not what would Viserys think? It'd be hard for me to quantify this, but I've got the feel that there was more leeway in House of the Dragon than in Game of Thrones. Maybe, maybe, yeah. And it, it kind of makes sense to me too, because that was a much bigger production. Not the House of Dragon isn't, but they had like multiple crews on multiple continents. That's true. You know, it, they needed to regiment the timelines and budgets a lot more carefully. Whereas House of the Dragon's source material isn't quite as regimented in the first place. There That's just is point. more leeway for what these characters would think and feel. And it's a little bit more contained of a story too. And so I think that allows for the directors to let the actors do more managers. They're just trying to stay in budget and get everyone in the right place at the right time and make sure the equipment doesn't break and deal with weather and stuff like that. Sometimes directors are a little bit more artistic where they're trying to get a certain emotion out of someone or coach an actor through something. And, you know, there's all ranges in between. But I can imagine in Game of Thrones, it was a little bit more managerial for the directors. Whereas in House of Dragons, it might be a little bit more artistic. I think you're probably right about that. And in fact, comments just from what we heard from people like Christopher and even Kit that they didn't have as much room to, to maneuver, whereas we're here. It was a more unique story yeah. from Torment. Yeah, or you hear yeah. from stories like, like Tom talked about, like, how, like his scenes with directors Gita Patel or Claire Kilner and how dialogue that, that Claire or Gita sparked with them in the moment, you know, led to a greater performance or a certain decision, which does point to them having that kind of creative, artistic dialogue on set about a lot of different things like that. Yeah. For example, Christopher was clever about how he did improv or how he did things that weren't in the script was that he wouldn't add lines. One of the ways his character became more developed is he just made facial expressions in the background and they started to notice that and were like, those are good facial expressions. Let's put that on. And that led to him getting more lines. Like that's just a really clever and he just like using what he was given, which wasn't a lot, but he found a way to make it work. So in Christopher's case, it might be the editors that he has the most thanks to that, that, that looked at the final cut and said, let's zoom in on Tormund right here and make him, you know. Look at that uh, guy's suggestive eating. Yeah. That's really good stuff. Let's <laughs> throw that in there. But he, he, he wasn't told to do that. But like a lot of these other cases, yeah, they, they only did what they were told because there wasn't as much room. So I think that's a really important distinction. Y'all are right to key in on the difference between Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon in that regard. So when we're, go- we're backing up to what started this, this the subtopic was Alfie Allen telling Tom to, to run with it. It's a huge machine, just gets swept up. It sounds like it's not quite as much a machine as it was for him as it is for Tom, which is unusual. Like the, usually the machine gets bigger, <laughs> but this time it's, it's a little more human, it sounds like in this case. 
Oh, yeah. I think Esme Bianco also spoke a little bit about just the difference in making television from now to like 10 years ago, which I think is relevant here because like she spoke about things like intimacy coordinators, which weren't as prevalent when she was on like the first season of Game of Thrones. And now uh, there's always going to be an intimacy coordinator and stuff like that. So she said that was she said she was fully in favor of that. She's like, yeah, yeah. it's better. I mean, there's some actors that say they don't like them, but they're in the minority, I'm sure. In terms of like, maybe it makes it harder for those actors to act, but it makes all the other actors more comfortable and not put in weird situations. So it, it, from what I've seen, it's the older actors who are just used to doing it a certain way and they're having to adjust. It's like, ah, uh, you know, I don't want to do it a new way. It seems like that's a good thing. Yeah, that's such a personal thing. You want to like manage that a little bit and not just leave it up to just two people who don't know each other that well, especially when especially there's imbalances you can imagine between star power and things like that. Yeah. Even an experienced, legitimate professional, whatever director, still might not have a lot of experience with that particular thing, you know? True. Very true. Very true. Funny anecdote here. Tom, of course, is older Egon, and Ty Tennant was younger Egon. They were both in the Tolkien movie <laughs> as each other, just like they are here in House of the Dragon. So <laughs> as the same character. So they just look alike and they're like, let's do that again. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. He was asked, what would he steal? And he said Blackfire, but it's pretty big. He's like, it's very impressive. It's it's heavy, it's metal and all this, but there's a fake one also for like when he was waving it around in front of the crowd, that was the fake one because it's like rubber because the other one's so heavy. So maybe he would steal that one because it would be easier. <laughs> yeah, you know, this also connects to Patty had a bit where he talked about what he wanted to steal from the set. So I'm just going to reference this because he unsurprisingly really wants his dagger. He has a big con- personal connection to the Valyrian Steel Cat Spa Dagger. You would think, like, to me, I'm like, Ryan Condal knows all about the value of... Pro- like, he even called it my knife. I yeah, just wanted my, my yeah. knife. <laughs> so, like, they won't get... Like, he asked for it. He straight up was like, I want this. Can I have it? And they refused to just make another one for him, which really <laughs> bothers me that they wouldn't just give King Viserys the dagger. So he stole a piece of the, the Valyria model. He stole a dragon. A yeah, he dragon. stole a piece of that, <laughs> well, which, like, that's them. cool. But, like, man, I'm like... George really wanted something from the set and Patty wants something and Ryan has a a props podcast and he's a showrunner. I just really want to tell Ryan, like, please. Give that man his dagger. Yeah. Or his knife. That, like, bothers me (laughs) on his sake. And it's it's just that. Maybe some fan will just buy him a replica and send it to him. Yeah. Come on. Maybe it's like a precedent thing. Maybe Ryan Condal's gone through this before. Like, no, you give one person a dagger, then you have to give everyone a dagger. And, all <laughs> I, I, you know, and let me tell you, $200,000 added to the budget. <laughs> I, I, I think that he should add the $200,000 to the budget. They hear, like, yeah. they shared stories about, like, Lord of the Rings and how, like, Liv Tyler, like, came out of it she with, like, a, sword, full, yeah. a full chest of swords. Yeah. Like, they, they gave rap gifts. A little of, like, different there because they were done. Once they were done, they were yeah, done. They, yeah. they, can, they needed to keep that dagger for yeah, later. They needed but, to keep but, as you said, they could make another one. You know? uh, yeah. Make another one. Yeah, yeah, I think it would be nice to do. I think we should start a campaign to get Patty <laughs> his, his knife. Give that his, dagger. his knife. Give him his <laughs> knife. Moving on to Joffrey. In c- comparison, the, com- the the banquet scene in House of the Dragon took two weeks. Joffrey said the, or Jack Gleason said the purple wedding took only a week and a half, which I would have thought that took longer because it's outdoors. There's more people. There's just more stuff going on. There's like a lot more actors in that one. So. But hey, there you go. 
You know, I think sometimes when you go back and look at some of the the Game of Thrones scenes and like you're like, that was a big scene in theory and you think about it. But when you actually look and watch it, you're like, actually, that wasn't a big set. Yeah, there weren't not. a lot of people on set there. Like they kind of... A lot of extras, but... They, sometimes like, yeah, sometimes they manage to just edit it just right to where it looks like you're like, it's the illusion of a really big set and it's not. And that's true for House of the Dragon too. More so in that's House of the point. Dragon because they've done things like digitally replicating audience members like in the tourney so that it looks like a huge crowd, but it's actually a very small, small group. Yeah. You can also imagine something like just seven extra people on set might make it go faster. If they just had like <laughs> two more cameras and two more oh, light yeah. people and everything that, you know, that can accelerate the process. Just that's part of the value of a bigger budget. You get things done faster. They were both asked about their plan to rule as king. Joffrey, Jackson Joffrey didn't really have a plan to rule. He wasn't very bright, his his words. <laughs> he just kind of would just go as it came. And, and Tom said, well, Aegon hasn't had time to think about it. He, was a blo- he didn't really think he was going to be king until he just was like, oh, I'm king now. So he hadn't thought about it in advance. So he's still working on that. Someone asked a really good question of Jack. Did Joffrey have a clue that Jamie was his father? And Jack said, yeah, he probably had a complex about it. He probably had a complex about who his dad was. He wanted approval from both of them because he didn't know for sure who was his real father and got approval from neither of them, which, again, doesn't make him a psychopath, but it does make him worse, right? That's still bad parenting, bad fathering, bad upbringing. You wouldn't, you won't, you wouldn't inflict that on anyone if you had the choice. It doesn't make him a psychopath, but it doesn't pull him away from it. It does not. It, it does send him deeper into it, probably. Someone else asked, what if Joffrey had a dragon? He just said, bad idea. Shouldn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was almost like, horrified as he, as he started thinking about the idea. He's like, no, no, no. no he no. couldn't even bring it to, to language. I want to point out, I think that Jack Gleason is one of the top actors of the of the Game of Thrones series. I, if, if I had a name, top three, I'd say Lena Hetty playing Cersei, Jack Gleason playing Joffrey, and Alfie Allen playing Theon and Reek. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. the, the sort of like disdain and disgust that Joffrey evokes not many actors have done that, it's you know, with relatively short off. screen time. and Like, you would resist wanting people character. to, like, like to feel that way about you. Like, I would, like, subconsciously, yeah. like, have a hard time making myself be that hated because I wouldn't want to really feel people hated me that much, you know, even though it's fake. Yeah. You know, I'd be like, ah, still, yeah. Ironic, too, how completely different Jack Gleason was from that. He was much more, I don't know how to say this, lighthearted, yeah. you know? He was much more friendly and and clever rather than like mean and spiteful he, he comes off as a very zen person like stuff that just rolls off his back like he said yeah he didn't yeah. have any trouble with fans he's like no i never had any trouble with this or that you know yeah it's easy to he's like how do you separate yourself from your character it's like shower in a cold beer i mean joffrey's awful like i don't want to be him so like it's easy to be <laughs> like i like naturally don't want to be liked you know and i'm not anything like him so well he studied full you know philosophy and theology in school so yeah true. i would yeah, expect very, him to have a, a good mindset like that but yeah he probably had a nice solid floor for like how to approach it without like sticking it to himself you know pretty pretty wise he's also recently married yeah yeah congrats to jack for getting married that's right so they hadn't met before their panel. They had met just the, the day before or earlier, like 12 hours before. And Tom said, teach me, oh, mighty master. It's <laughs> a <to> Jack. <laughs> and Jack said, oh, you know, when being king, just try to be as nice as possible to the writers so they won't kill you off. <laughs> <laughs> he also said, on being king, is it just showing up is half the battle? Just have fun with it. <laughs> just go, just really go with the power trip. Be horrible. <laughs> what did he, I think he quote. said... 
It's fun to be a spoiled brat. You should try it sometime. <laughs> and Tom said, I just hope it lasts longer than a day. <laughs> Jack said, yeah, I didn't want to stay in, in Joffrey's mind any more than I had to. He, he also thinks they can be comedic. Another thing he said he could do to detach is just to realize how ridiculous his character is. He's like, this, these, he lacks self-awareness to a degree that's almost unrealistic. Not, not quite, but like it's so you know, up there. It's such a high level of 10 of 10 level of self, lack of self-awareness that he really leaned into that. He had fun with it, like almost tried to make it comedic. And that was that made it easier, like on his psyche being such an awful character. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people have called the Greens very camp. And I think that's very true. And I think Joffrey was camp as well, which is the extremeness of character. Yeah. Essentially, <laughs> is, is, is humorous to that, to that level. Yeah. yeah. Star, a Stark fan asked... To Joffrey, given what you did to my family, what and, he, and J- Jack's like, well, it seems like you have some ideas. Like, well, I, what would you do to my characters? Like, well, I, and she just immediately goes, I'd start with your arms, then your legs. We're like, whoa. And he goes, <laughs> okay, nice to meet you. <laughs> just like, you know, jokingly ready to move on. And then much later in the panel, someone asked both of them, who would your character kill? And Tom, I don't even know what Jack said, but Tom was like, Oh, that's easy. It starts with an R and ends with Maynira. <laughs> and then how would you kill her? Well, I'd start with her arms and then her legs. <laughs> Classic. Yeah, they riffed off each other pretty well. I'd say all the actors were all pretty quick-witted, you know. Yeah. Had good sense of the humor and showing their improv off skills. The questions yeah. being asked them and yeah. The benefit of Bran not being there was it enabled them to do like a quick improv skit on being products of incest, which was hilarious because they're obviously Aegon and Joffrey are both products of incest. So they were like, have you spoken to your mom and dad about it? Yeah, they just keep making out in front of me. <laughs> I'm very sad that I'm a product of incest. <laughs> so that was classic, yeah. They joked about, I think someone asked them like, what if they met each other? Like, what if they're in the same timeline? And I think the expectation was like, that they would like, be out for each other that one would try to have the other killed or something but they were like no we'd be best buds we'd go shopping for hats (laughs) skipping through flea bottom they said together which they did as they were done with the panel they linked arms and skipped off stage it was like that was hilarious anyway let's move on to strong and valarian two house of the dragon characters we got matthew needham laris together with Steve Toussaint, Coralise. We'll talk about them both together and separately. It was really good. I, I, my pick for favorite actor panel, the most informative was Matthew Needham, Laurie Strong. He was really good. His interpretations of his character were on another level. There's stuff we hadn't thought about. Really eloquent, some of his takes and really thoughtful. So I don't know about and y'all. really funny sometimes. Yeah, but that, that's where I landed on that. So what were some of your first thoughts on Matthew, Sean? Someone asked, what motivated him. And he said, power. He said that he maybe has this sort of resentment toward the world for how he was treated with the disability growing up and maybe he wants to kind of take revenge on the world, but not feet. That's that's not his motivation. Yes. <laughs> and he kind of went back to that a couple of times. He said that he first read for Damon, which, you know, people were like, ooh, the audience was kind of impressed like, with that. That would have been a much different he show, said, he said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he said they decided to go in more of a Matt Smith direction. <laughs> uh, he was really funny, yeah. And I, I think it was in response to someone asking about if he had read the books, you know, to prep for his character. And he said that he actually had 
a, a copy of Fire and Blood signed by George R. R. Martin. <laughs> and just like, yes, he didn't miss a beat. He just kept going like he didn't even make a joke. And like a veteran comedian. The audience was laughing so much. Yeah. yeah. And then he repeatedly, throughout his various interviews, when he referred to George, he, he referred to him as, as George with the sexy purring sound. Yeah. Greta um, like asked him to do that again. And Steve Toussaint was like, I can't roll my R's like that. He's <laughs> like, I can't say that. <laughs> Another thing that was asked uh, was the, the parallels between him and Littlefinger and Varys. That, you know, he was more sneaky, conniving, behind-the-scenes character as opposed to like a warrior or a leader or whatever. And uh, and and he said that he it, comparison makes sense, but it's there's a flaw in it that he's just not as advanced as those characters, right? Like he's just getting take. started. Littlefinger and Varys have been doing this a lot longer. And sometimes it's hard to tell how much he was holding back from things he shouldn't say or how much he really just wasn't sure about stuff. I think that, uh, and often that's the case with these types of interviews and people who can't reveal stuff from the show. But I think he did maybe a, a better job of revealing very interesting stuff without spoiling stuff and, and being not as blatant about like, I can't say that because it will spoil stuff. You know, someone asked what, again, comparing to Littlefinger and Varus, like Littlefinger's cast is ladder. They asked what his mantra was. And he said, Love is a downfall. That that was defining for his character that he couldn't. He wasn't. He didn't have these emotional, con, these pesky emotional connections that some people have, like love and family. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he's he's beyond that, and that can be useful. Yeah, you know, so if you need someone to be. Yeah. Yeah, let's see. Aziz, you asked him about the uh, Firefly. Yeah, I actually got to ask him about the Firefly sigil and what his interpretation of it was, and he said it was like a parallel to the High Towers. How? The leading, like the light and the darkness, like leading people through, especially because it's a green light, like the the high tower at war thing. So he just that's that was his interpretation of it. He did, they didn't have a specific conversation with the showrunners about it, but that's how he saw it. He didn't say this, but I wonder if that's arrogance that Loris has. Maybe that yeah. you know he's the light in the darkness. I'm the one that's gonna like lead Alicent or lead the realm or whoever. Yeah. And he, there was a really good question about his connection to his nephews. So he says he's keeping an eye on them. He doesn't have any like attachment to them, but he's a little wary of them and what they might do in case they blame him for anything. But he doesn't, otherwise he doesn't really think they're a problem or, or something that he needs to worry about. It was, yeah, it was like, I, I feel like the question caught me off guard. I kind of felt like, how come I never even thought about this, you know? And I think he at first felt the same way, but as he thought it through, he's like, yeah, he would want to keep an eye on it because they are, on some level, they might piece together that he killed their real father. Yeah. He might have some sway over them as an uncle, or they might look to him as an ally, as their uncle, or... Yeah, there, there could be a lot of angles. It might be positive or negative, but I it was it occurred to me that I couldn't believe I hadn't even thought about that. You know? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. He was so removed, you know, it was presented so different from the rest of the Strongs, you know. Another, someone asked... Oh, uh, I was going to say another a related, something somewhat related to that was how he, what causes him to take sides, Sean? I know you have a note on this as well. And, and it's not, you know, of course, someone as villainous as him, it's not like he... It's not like a virus where he thinks there's a certain right way to run the realm or he thinks there's a correct way to run the realm. He doesn't, he doesn't really have a... There's no right... Right and wrong doesn't really enter his mind. It's, it's really more about pragmatism and what's going to work or what he thinks is going to work. Which, it's not far from Otto, you know? Yeah. Like, not far from a lot of characters, really. He didn't think that. the realm would accept Rhaenyra, basically. Like, right, yeah. He, I think that someone was trying to get him to clarify if he 
was Team Green because he thought that Alicent and, and Aegon were the best rules for the realm, or if he was just playing the power that was there and uh, on the, the, the side he thought was best to, to land on. And basically, yeah, he, you know, he just, I, I think he wasn't necessarily even trying to play for the side that was best to land on, although he was doing it, but he just didn't think, kind of like Otto, he didn't think the realm was going to accept Rhaenyra. And so let me try to be on the side where I do think the realm is going to kind of land. Whether that's right or wrong, he wasn't thinking about that. And that's know? part of why he took out his own family. I mean, obviously, he, just, he partly did that for Alicent and other reasons to be raising his own profile and become Lord of Harrenhal. But his family was siding with the wrong side, you know, in his mind as well. Wrong meaning not wrong ethically, but just the one that would lose. <laughs> wrong, wrong from a practically. Yeah. Wrong strategically. Yeah, or whatever. The, one that, the one that they're more likely to survive and thrive by backing, etc. He also said that uh, with the Varus and Littlefinger comparison, I thought something was really insightful, was that Varus and Littlefinger are extroverts, like in terms of personality type, if you want to put them in a category. And he's an introvert. Laris is an introverted character, the way he approaches people, the way he talks to people, which I, that's a really good insight. I, did, I hadn't thought about that. It's just like, it's one of the things that goes ding. It's like, oh yeah, that's very true. Very good observation there. And where I think some of this came from is not only is Matthew Needham, it was very clear that he's a very insightful, intelligent person, but just like Viserys, just like a lot of these other characters, he got to flesh his character out somewhat. He looked at Fire and Blood, read it, at least some of it, and was like, well, there's not a lot of detail about this character's personality. There's plenty about what he does, but not about what motivates him, who he is, like what's making him tick. There was one really interesting detail that they flushed out, which was that they decided that much like Tyrion Lannister, Larry Strong's mother died giving birth to him. And so, yeah, Lionel's wife and Harwin and Laris's mother is part of the Dead Mother's Club, the Dead Ladies Club and A Song of Ice and Fire. There's lots of women who have died in childbirth. And this is not the case in Fire and Blood that we know of, but... Lionel does have multiple wives, so it does make sense. He's for his, like three wives. Yeah, yeah. His, it makes sense for his for him to have lost some wives, and yeah, it's, it's checked ha, out. If you've had, if you've been married three times in that era of Westeros, and your wives died of natural, like they weren't murdered, then <laughs> safe bet one of them, maybe even two or even all three, died in childbirth. Yeah, so, so Lionel has kind of yeah. mixed feelings, or had mixed feelings towards Laris because it was kind of a reminder of his dead wife, but also he did care about him. You know, it wasn't, there's more love, I think, in Lionel's heart for Laris than Tywin had for Tyrion. Yeah, and yeah, like Lionel's wrestling with himself over that. It was with the impression we got that like he doesn't, he can't help but associate the grief. It's not, he doesn't have the resentment that Tywin has. He doesn't out and out blame him for his wife's death, but he has trouble detaching the grief from that scenario. Something that Viserys has a bit as well with, with his children. He, he handles it differently, but it's there. And Harwin becomes protective of Laris a little bit because he perceives that. He perceives that he's taking yeah. some of this subconscious guilt from their father. And then Laris feels resentful over that. <laughs> uh, yeah, over needing to be protected. Right. Yeah. Like, even that protectiveness starts to make him feel lesser. Yes, you know, yes. like even, even, you know, he's still is kept, you, know, you can't ride a horse, you can't go fighting, like all the <laughs> things that all the other boys are supposed to do, he isn't allowed to, he's kind of relegated to the background, even if on some level it's coming from love or protection, even if on some level Lionel is trying to not be resentful of his son, Loras is too perceptive and clever to not see it and be affected by it, and never mind if there's some other innate 
sociopath gene or whatever going on in him, it's, it's similarly exacerbated even when people aren't actively poor to him like Robert was to, to Joffrey. Mm-hmm. You know, an, an interesting thought like in the, the world of Martin and in the world in general, that the sort of nature versus nurture yeah. questions. It was neat to hear uh, Matthew Needham contemplate how he was playing his character. Speaking of nature nurture, the, the next bit here is about the plant, the, how that was such a great metaphor, the, the hibiscus type, whatever they called it. I can't remember the name. But y'all know the plant I'm talking about, yeah. the one that, thri- that says he's, he came from Bravos and is thriving in this, despite all odds, thriving in this environment. It's a great metaphor, but he, the way he sees it is he took that beauty, that special thing, he cut it and potted it. Right. And that's how he sees it. So he can control it. And it's like, ooh. And, and there's apparently a scene that was left out where he presents them to her again. To be clear that he's using that plant as an, a symbol for Allison. Yes. He's yes. kind of got clipped her and has control of her now. And just like he has that plant in the apartment, he's got her in the apartment and he's taking advantage of this thing. It was thriving outside of his environment. Now he's taking hold of it. Yeah, he's taking advantage of the thing that he doesn't have, the pesky emotions that he doesn't have. He's basically, she's doing these things, debasing herself, etc., for her children. She's not doing it for her, right? I don't, like, she's not that type of person. She's not Cersei where it's about her. I mean, Cersei cared about her children, but it's a different balance here. Like, Allison wouldn't do yeah. any of this stuff if her children's lives weren't in the balance, I don't think, where Cersei might still. Uh, maybe Cersei isn't even the best example, but still... Alice is doing this for her children, you know, her family, not for herself. And this gets us into the foot fetish thing, which he had a really interesting take on, really, really insightful. It doesn't necessarily change the way it was presented. And he expressed the same thing. He said, look, y'all, I wish this had been presented better. I wish this was more clear. He's not sure how they would have made it more clear, given that it's like all in Laris's head. And what are you going to do? Have this introverted villain just like say these things out loud. So <laughs> he understands why it wasn't well presented. We still have criticisms about the way this subplot was handled, but it definitely changes how I see their intent. The way they presented it and the way the intent, those are two different things, but I think intent matters, even if it didn't come out the way they wanted. He says the apex of his ambition is not feet. It wasn't that he has a foot fetish because his foot is crippled. It's because he wanted her to feel shame over the same body part that he feels shame over. And he wanted it to linger even when he's not there. He said that like real world victims of assault, he made her body the scene of the crime. It's permanently the scene of the crime, even long after he's dead or not connected to her or not. She'll still feel that shame like he feels over his foot. And he likes that he can make her feel that way. He likes having the ability to control her and manipulate her in this very villainous, specific, cruel way, twisted thing that he has. So that that was a really interesting explanation. How did that resonate with y'all? Was that, did you kind of receive it the same way or what, what did you think? Yeah, I, you know, I will say, by the way, when I first saw that scene in the show, I, I didn't make this connection to his club foot and the foot fetish. I didn't, maybe I should have, and probably to some people would hit more awkwardly. When I did connect that, I was like, oh, I see how that could be in poor taste. But the more he talked about it, the more I realized that it wasn't, I think he even said at one point, it's not really a foot fetish. It's not like what we think of as a foot fetish. It's just like, his method of manipulation, his method of exerting control, that didn't have to be a foot or whatever. Yeah, it didn't you have know, to be a foot. It wasn't necessarily connected to his disability. It's connected to his ability to 
control her or control other people. I think he even said at one point something to the effect of he feels a sort of incompleteness. He right? likes and making it, other he, people feel And that. he wants to inflict that on other people by cutting out their tongues, for example. And it has a side benefit of maybe now they can't give up his secrets. But He uh, can't do that to her because she's the queen. But so. he can't cut out her tongue, but he can, right? He can make her associate the shame with body part, etc. So anyway, it, there was clearly a lot more layers and depths and psychology behind it than just he has a foot fetish because he has a disability. It, it, there's way more to it than that. Yeah. Did you have any thoughts on that, Asher? Or was that pretty well covered? No, I think you guys covered it. Okay, cool. In addition to that, he he's talking about the scene with filming the cutting of tongues and all that. He said that that was a really tough day. <laughs> he said they really cut that guy's tongue off. No, yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He said he did say that. <laughs> no, he really didn't say that, but he was kidding. Too. <laughs> we think. We think. <laughs> they asked, "Well, what was the tongue made of?" You know, and he goes, "No, that was his real. They really did that." <laughs> he was very deadpan about it. If he was joking, he did. <laughs> yeah, he's like, "No, we just sat there all day and just cut tongues over and over because you know they just film everything over and over to get it right." He's like, "Yeah, it was just like I just sat there watching tongues get cut out." Oh. And blood curdling screams like every few minutes. It was really, it was a really tough day. <laughs> but again, like you said, just total deadpan. Like his demeanor was the same whether he's talking about that or whether like it's the filming process or whether he's joking about Martin. Yeah, he, like this guy was like <laughs> the temperament of a comedian, I tell you. He also, he loved the dinner entrance scene so much with the Valarian family coming through with people asking like one of his favorite scenes. And he said that him and Ryan Cor Harwin looked at each other and were like, that's effing cool. <laughs> when all the Valarians come in, he's like, that was really neat. Yeah, they like that. Our friend Kim asked a question too, by the way. She was trying to get something out about maybe the weirwood tree or maybe is there some supernatural element to Laris? I think early on he said something like, you know, I, I don't think he meant that he literally had a superpower, but he did use the term superpower to like pick up on people's emotions or weaknesses or, you know, to, to observe what's going on in the realm or in court or whatever. But she was pressing that. Like, is there a supernatural element? How did he know the things he was asking Allison about? And he's like, that's the interesting thing about his character is either he's this powerful, mystical, supernatural creature, or he's a preferred creep. That's one or the other. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was... You never know. We immediately... (laughs) Joe Magician immediately sounded the alarm on that one. That was was manna from heaven for him there. But yeah, but Lars... he wasn't clear. He left it open. I think it's one of the things where he he probably hasn't even seen what's been written for season two about his character. So he probably really doesn't know. But like a lot of actors playing a role, it would be like, oh, do I have supernatural powers? That would be pretty cool. You know, maybe he... Yeah. But if he did know, he wouldn't be able to say. So... Yeah, that's yeah. my impression think, is that I don't I don't think that yeah. he really actually knows one way or another at this point. Yeah. I think he first said, I can't comment, but then went on to elaborate. And I got the idea that it wasn't so much he can't comment because he knows, but it's secret, but because he doesn't really know for sure. Yeah. He said, but I know what you mean to the question. Yes, they yeah. were like, mm, which would just mm. fuel the fire a little more. As we slowly transition to talking more about Steve, because they Steve and Matt were on a panel together as well. While Steve was answering a completely unrelated question, he happens to glance in the front row of the audience and just interrupts himself. He's like, blah, 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 what the? Just yells out, what the, to the crowd. And Matt, again, doesn't miss a beat. He's like, my people. And what was he pointing at? Three people dressed, if you're watching the video, you can see three people dressed as rats. Rats from the Red Keep. 
walking around, as we talked about a million times throughout the season. Those rats kept making appearances. There were attempts to maybe connect them to Laris or not. And <laughs> so Steve had no idea what was going on. Matt ex- explains it to him. Those are the rats or whatever. And then when the panel was over, Matt did the like, I see you thing to them, like where they're looking at each other and point, you know, like <laughs> it was great because for one thing, you had to pay like $1,500 to sit in that front row. So these rats were very dedicated. Some of the pictures of the, of the panel and the front may have looked a little sparse, but that's just because those front seats were expensive or press. So the, the press rows weren't entirely filled and we were in in them part of the time but the front 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 row was yeah 1500 seats so so yeah very dedicated rats yeah those right rats there. i don't know how those rats got so much money but <laughs> it's a lot of <laughs> maybe cheese. they were very sneaky rats yeah, saving up the cheese you know like stealing <laughs> gems tiny diamonds there were some good questions for for steve as well for example sean here's one you took about how he feels about the law that was a really good question, I thought, about the type of how he approaches these situations in the small council versus seemingly all the rest of the small council is not on the same page with him. Yeah, I think he said, I think the question was, how did he feel? Steve went on a little bit of a tangent because I think the question was asking how he felt. It was toward the end when, when, he, when he, he had been wounded and he was back and he, was kind of, he and Rainey was kind of throwing their support to Rhaenyra. But he seemed to be like the most respected leader in the room, right? Everyone's kind Deferring, of like... Yeah. Follow me easily, deferring. Thank you. Yeah. And they want to know how did he feel in that position or in that moment. And, but Steve said that, you know, he, he talked more about generally the idea that Corliss feels like they need to follow the, the, the rules. There's a way to do things. We have like this tradition and it's established, you know, protocol. And we got it. And, and he, you know, he felt like he was doing the right thing. Of course, I'm going to support Rhaenyra because she's the one that Becerra said was going to inherit the throne. And, you know, there are these usurpers, usurpers back at home and, you know, they're, they're not following the law, which is interesting. And it kind of made sense, you know, his, his character, you know, maybe he's ambitious or, or short-sighted, but he, another thing Steve said at another point was he kind of wears his heart in his sleeve. He's not, he's not sneaky or conniving. He's pretty upfront about what he wants, what he expects, you know. But I feel like that was a little incomplete hmm. because it ignores the fact that Renera is not really following a law. She's not supposed to have bastard children, <laughs> right? <laughs> and true, and the true. fact that Allison thinks that she's following a law, you know, they don't, they're not fully informed of the scenario back home either. So it makes sense that Corliss's character feels this way, but there is more to it than that, that, you know, he doesn't necessarily see. Some of it was political, like saying the things that needed to be said. Like, no, of course we follow the law. Like, it was a good way to lead from the front. Yeah, I I got some of that, too, that it was not entirely his character, how his character felt, but how he was presenting it. But that fits either way. Uh, Along that same line, like Steve was presenting Corliss consistently, someone asked him how he would feel about Damon having cut his brother's head off. Like, what would he have done if he was there? He's like, well, what did he do when he found out his brother was dead? He just, yeah. he's like, ah, eh. yep, yep. He kind yeah. of thought coming. He didn't follow the law, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> that's what happens, you know? Like, so. Yeah, and he knew his brother was like that hit really well. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, that that's what we kind of thought too. Like, he didn't react super strongly mm-hmm. to it. He had a reaction, but it was like, once he heard the reason, he was like, oh, well, that's, that's yeah, that is what happens when you do that. Yeah. <laughs> he, he said, okay, so the first scene they ever shot. So remember back to what we said at the beginning, how he formed the basis for of his character around loyalty to his wife. And he expanded on that. He said there was a scene that was cut or a part of a scene that was cut where he winks at Rainey's after 
maybe egging Viserys on for a little more out of their de- marriage offer. He's like, well, actually, let me get one more thing out of you. And he said in the scene, Rainey's looks at him and is like, don't do that. Shakes her head like, no, 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 no. Don't but do he that. gives her a cheeky wink. And they cut the wink. And he was disappointed. He understood why they cut the wink because it's maybe a little too unserious or whatever. But he, he thought it showed their relationship really well in, in a single, very concise gesture that they, that they have that kind of joking, like private joke between them, even at the expense of the king. <laughs> you know, like that's their relationship. Yeah, that would have been nice to see that. I just want to point real quick that question about the, how Corliss felt at the painted table and he answered about like his idea of you got to follow the law. That was uh, Kyle's question. Oh yeah, to, Kyle to, Foster, to, yeah. And he said that he he had a resentment for the rest of the small council. He's like, he just thought he was you know, more accomplished and more honorable than pretty much all of them. <laughs> and so that caused a lot of resentment, <laughs> which was part of why he was always so frustrated and because he would feel that while he was there and it would kind of drive his actions a bit and affect his demeanor. As we pointed out when the episode aired, episode seven was the first one that filmed. And he said, and the first actual film shot or scene they filmed was the aftermath of Lena's death, like the immediate aftermath. And, or not the immediate aftermath, but, you know, because we don't see the immediate aftermath that happens in, in Pentos. But he, they filmed some scenes and he said, I went home and said out loud, thank God for Eve Best. <laughs> and then the next day he went and told her that. <laughs> and, you know, she was grateful or whatever. But he said that she's just so good at when they could, like they was, a, if he would slightly alter something or run with something, she was just on top of it. She was always rolling with whatever he did and leading him to new places that he wasn't expecting that he rolled with and just thought, wow, she is really good, a really good scene partner. She literally has the best, basically, he said. And heck yeah, that's that's fantastic. The crowd was yeah. The crowd was asked a question, or the question. The, the crowd asked the question of the panel out of Patty, Steve, or Matt, Matt Needham. Who would be James Bond? And it was pretty quick. The crowd was yelling for Steve. No, so that would, would have been a Patty, Steve, and Alfie Allen. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, Alfie, not not Matt. My bad. Yeah, Alfie. So they yes, yelled. and the crowd was myself and Kim Renfro <laughs> in the front press section, immediately yelling loudly. <laughs> Steve. The rest of the crowd followed your lead. Yes, but we definitely, both of us were, did not take even a beat before we thought about it and yelled that. And Steve like looked right at our little section and looked very flattered. Steve was the most like dressed up too. He was looking more smooth than anyone else too. He had like this nice like shiny jacket on. Yeah, he looked he looked a little more like a celebrity, a little more like a James Bond. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Very, very <laughs> tall. I, I definitely like, I forget who it was, but someone came up to me and they were like, I saw Steve in the in the vendor's room. He's so tall. <laughs> and like, and like a dreamy. It was some girl at the con. It was really funny to me. Yeah, Steve was... Steve was I think uh, Greta made a point of that when Steve, Matt, Needham both came out because they're both really tall. She's like, is the cast of House of Dragon taller than a cast of Game of Thrones? Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Compared to like Jack and Alfie and then Steve is short Matt. Too. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. A couple questions that Steve answered was his how kind of two connected questions, how he would have felt about finding out Lenor was still alive. And I thought it was interesting. He said that earlier Corliss would have been livid, would have been upset. Later Corliss would have been more understanding, would have been. Yeah, that was a great question because it showed it showed his growth as a character throughout the season. Like because he because he also pointed out how like he he loves and respects Rainey's, but doesn't always listen to her. Although sometimes he does listen to her, just not right away. Uh, Yeah. And that that. Absolutely. That was a really good question about Lenor because, yeah, it was very enlightening. And it, 
He also answered that as someone asked what their the biggest misconceptions that people had about them. And Matthew Needham, of course, said the biggest misconception is that he really cares about feet or that's his real motivation. No, that's not it. And Steve said the biggest misconception about Corliss was that he really does love Lane Orr and his kids. Though I'm still suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't show up very it's well. It's tough love. It's a different kind. It's Westeros fatherly love. It's a different kind yeah. of love than the real world. All right, we'll, we'll come back to talk about Patty in just a minute. Let's let's do a little mid-roll break here. Amy Blackfire, who we got to meet in person for the first time, says Sean is wearing her favorite Sanri shirt. That's cool. And Look Aziz is wearing a new History of Westeros shirt. This is the Regal designed egg. But on our Threadless store, you can see a bunch of other History of Westeros egg colors. You could have a rainbow egg, a pink egg, purple Drogon, like we have, I was probably like six, seven, eight different color choices for you. Yeah, so. and that, and you don't always have to get a shirt. You can get these in designs as stickers or mugs. There's a lot of other things Magnet, you can get them as. You know. Yeah. Well, you can go to historyofwesteros.threadless.com. Okay. And for a Sean's shirt, that is sanrixian.threadless.com. So this is really uh, just a threadless push today. Yeah, so, they have they have sales frequently. So you want to check back if yeah. you log in when there isn't one. So yeah, our friends over at Smile Brilliant are are still running ads with us and we're happy about that. I can't wait to get back my impressions and start the process. I've got the the molding and uh, sent to them and I'm just waiting for it to be returned. Stop the expensive gas and test method when it comes to teeth whitening and oral care. And, and when I get it, I'll be able to show off my new whiter teeth. <laughs> if you're like me, you're a little confused by all the variations of teeth whitening on the market. So I looked it up. I've done some research and got some information from them and then cross-checked that against other sources. I didn't find any of their claims to be even a little exaggerated or off. It seemed all on the up and up, which is great because this stuff is important. It's uh, you don't want to waste your money or hurt your teeth. And that's I think that's one of the worst things that can happen is you can use a product that will actually harm your teeth. LED lights aren't very good for that. They increase your tooth sensitivity strips miss things and by missing things they make what they don't get and stand out even more we've all seen what is a brown shirt with a stain on it versus a white shirt with a stain on it which stands out more <laughs> obviously the white shirt with a stain on it that stain is going to look a lot more stand out. like that's why sean and i are wearing black so the many stains all over no we're not these are new shirts. i've never worn the shirt before i hope it doesn't have a stain on it <laughs> but you can't see all the black blood i see <laughs> <on me. laughs> why it's black and red, right? Yeah. <laughs> Charcoal is very abrasive. It strips away tooth enamel. Big no-no. And whitening toothpaste only works on surface stains. So it doesn't really, it's not a deep cleaning product. So the number one product recommended by dentists is a custom fitted tray, which used to only be available from dentists for like 300 minimum to up to $1,000. That changed more than a decade ago. Smile Brain has been doing it for that long. They have had an innovative lab direct process that's been evolving for many years. So head over to smilebrilliant.com, get custom fitted teeth whitening trays or night guards. If you grind your teeth, a lot of other products as well that support your oral care, electric toothbrush, water flosser, things like that. Our code is Westeros, or if there's already a site-wide sale, do Westeros 5 and it'll tack on an extra 5%. So Westeros or Westeros 5, one of them will work. Both of them will generate a discount. Start now, get your teeth whiter. We're also sponsored by NordVPN. I did a little more research on them, comparing them to some of the other options out there. They're more secure than Surfshark. They have regular security audits and they're more <coughs> affordable, much more affordable 
than ExpressVPN. One of the things that NordVPN does best is when you're look when you since you're connecting to other servers virtually or rather as a, a in, in place of your own server, your own IP address, what NordVPN has is more servers than any other VPN. They have 5,000 servers in over 65 countries. And when you're interacting with that, when you're trying to choose which country to connect to rather than where you're at, it just displays as a map. So you can just click on the country and it connects you there to one of their, as I said, 5,000 servers. Also, something that I haven't mentioned before, it's, it's the best VPN for torrenting because it has a kill switch. Most kill switches on VPNs, they shut off your connection entirely. It's a, it's a fail safe that says, okay, if my VPN fails or stops working, I don't want the torrent to keep running. So it shuts off your whole connection. What makes NordVPN special is that it only stops the torrent. It doesn't shut off all your connections. It only stops the torrent. So everything else is going to keep running. So that's a lot more convenient when something goes wrong. It just nerfs that one little thing, which you can restart on your own rather than just axing your nuking your whole connection, which you have to restart at all. So that's pretty cool. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash thrones to get four-month plan for free on top of the sign-up. It's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can easily have time to play around with it and see what's what and make sure it's what you expected. And it's only the price of a cup of coffee per month. Talk about low risk. You really aren't investing very much to see if this is right for you. And it might pay off pretty big in terms of saving money, improving your connection, and your security. Okay, a couple of little fun tidbits before we talk about Patty Considine. We don't have time to go through every single panel and everything they said because 11 actors plus everything else. And we want to focus on House of the Dragon as much as possible. But a couple of things from Daniel Portman and a few others. That's Podrick. Man, it's got to be a little annoying to be him at a con. He's a really funny guy. He's probably more on the extroverted side than most of the actors. But they just, people just cannot stop asking him about the stupid brothel scene. Like every time. The fr- okay, he gets up there. He's, this is a guy that is an expert at riding horses. He's a, he sang a cappella. Like he's got a great singing voice. He's clearly a great actor. He was with Gwendolyn Christie probably more than any other actor on the show. So he has more insight into her, let alone himself. Yet people just want to ask him about the brothel scene. Like, what, what is it? What, any tips for uh, like any just bad questions, you know, just really annoying. But to his credit, he doesn't just sit there and take it. He, he fires back at them. The first person that got in line and asked was like, ask about the brothel scene. He goes, all right, who else of you in line wants to ask about the brothel scene? Unfortunately, about half the people raised their hand and he was just like, get out. (laughs) (laughs) And later when it wasn't a solo panel, when it was him and Roz and Christian Nairn and I think Christopher Hivju, maybe I have the pairing wrong, but there's like four of them together. Someone again asked about the brothel scene and he goes, did you think about how this question would sound asked in front of a whole bunch of people like this. And the person kind of hems and haws like, you're, you're regretting it now, aren't you? <laughs> so he's really just trying to like draw a line and saying like, look, if you ask me this question, I'm going to embarrass you. And they still ask it. <laughs> just stop it. Ask him a real question. Anyway, rant over. That was a real waste of everyone's time at the con, but at least Daniel made it entertaining. <laughs> so it was almost <laughs> worth it to hear his responses, but would rather just them ask good questions. David Peterson was there. I did not see him. Did y'all see him? You went, right, Sean? Yeah, Reed and I okay, went to his cool. panel. It was, he had, I think he had two or three panels. At least two, uh, yeah. And they were all cross-scheduled with other panels. Yeah, yeah. The It was similar, I would say, to the 
the one we saw at Ice and Firecon, except that he did a little bit more. His his panel Ice and Firecon was a little bit more background of the the nature of language invention and his story through it all. Mm. Where this was a little bit more focused on like how Dothraki works. And then in Q&A, some of that other story of his life and the process came up. And I presume the other panel was more focused on High Valerian and so on. But yeah. it's definitely very insightful to get his takes. And he's got kind of a snarky sense of humor, too. <laughs> it's something that was very different about this convention than, than what we're used to. And as I said, we usually go to the more book-centric or combo cons that, that do both or conventions that are covering a lot of things and not just Game of Thrones stuff. And pretty much every other convention we've ever been to, there's been always a lot of choices on what to do. Like you could, there's panels, there's sword fighting, or there's other gatherings or things like that. This con didn't have a lot of choices on what to do. Thankfully, the actor panels were so good that I didn't really want to do other stuff. I just wanted to sit there and listen to what the actors had to say. So your mileage may vary, but that was something that could have been a negative that worked out, at least for me personally. They did have a few other things. Not to say that was the only, only other thing. They had an auction, they had a panel room with some, some vendor stuff, but it, there wasn't a lot of vendor stuff in there. And it was pretty corporate, which isn't the worst thing, but you know, yeah, we, we'd like, rather have variety and yeah, independent Yeah, it was like stuff. the WB shop and like, you know, the slot machines yeah. and I don't know. Yeah. They had a painted table in there. It was pretty cool. It wasn't, it wasn't as nice as the one they used on the show. I wanted to do the Driftmark thing where I, 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 got, I was going to have a Shay take a picture of me brushing my hand over Driftmark like, like Jace or like Luke did. But Driftmark wasn't there. <laughs> so I'm like, well. <laughs> so instead, I leaned over and tried to take a bite out of the bite. I don't know if we have that. Oh, there it is. I, I didn't think she actually had that picture. But there it I is. Me it. biting the bite. I prepared there. Yes. You can even see. I zoomed way in. This is Aziz's teeth before smile. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back and see how they look after. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, real. I'm thinking. I'm trying to set my impression in West in the painted table <laughs> instead of. Where I'm to put them. So they also had a nice display of, of of eggs, dragon eggs, and some other. They're a huge replica Iron Throne, like full size. That was really cool. Yeah, the Iron Throne. They had two different Iron Thrones, actually. Oh yeah, they had like a, a Game of Thrones one and a. Yeah, this a is the House one. of the Dragon one. Look at a Shea looking queenly up there, oh. regal. Look at that royalty. Yeah. What about queenly? That's very. Classist of you. <laughs> I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a ruler for the people. I'm the people's ruler. You're setting a throne. <laughs> That's all I can say. We got. There's also Sean in front of. Look at that of dancing Sean maneuver. Yeah, yeah I just photo like this by picture. me. Actually, yeah. both those photos were by me. Yeah, photo <laughs> by Aziz. Yes. Christian Nairn did his DJ thing. He is a touring DJ and he spun Saturday night. It was fun. We got some some footage of that. A bunch of us went up there and had a little, had a little time dancing and hanging out. That was good times. Mm-hmm. There was a costume contest. That was fun, fun, fun. There was some really good costumes. Some, some really, really bad costumes. There were some good, bad costumes. Some <laughs> no. good, good costumes. <laughs> we met this guy, David, at San Diego Comic-Con in line for in the press line. And here he is showing off his amazing Sandor cosplay. That is a a custom made face molding. He doesn't actually look like Sandor Clegane. See, I have mixed feelings about the use of a a mask like this. It's kind of cheating to me because you just like, but like, that's kind of the point. Like, I, I don't actually have anything wrong with it, but he did win. And I am like, well, he had a silicone mask custom made. I don't mind it. Here's why. Because... When you have a costume contest, at least in Game of Thrones land, 
the first people to make the cut are the ones who put the most effort into their costumes. But what separates the people who put a lot of effort yeah. into their costumes from other people who made a lot of effort into the costumes is how much they naturally look like the cast. If you're looking at the screen right now, you see the winning couple, Jon Snow and Igrit, aka Con Snow and his partner. Like he's been nicknamed Con Snow for like a decade because he already looks like Kit Harrington. He's got a huge leg up. I mean, the guy deserves it. Look at him. But he had the leg up because he looks there, like, like it. there was another Jon Snow there. And I don't know that one Jon Snow is necessarily any better like costuming wise. It's possible that Con Snow's was actually more elaborate, but I don't know that that's why he won. You can't, but you just can't beat actually looking like the yeah. actress. Unless I think you David get was a mask to. made. So like you get a mask did. made and look like, because yeah. basically there was a, they shouldn't have done it this way. They did the audience participation cheering to see who wins, which is not a good way to run a costume contest. Yeah, we say boo to cheering for, <laughs> for choosing a winner. But they had them all up there and pretty much the, the final cut was like five people who really, who had good costumes who really looked like the character. There was an Arya who just really looked like yeah. Arya. There was Catelyn who didn't actually make the final cut who really looked like Catelyn. There was a Casterly Fox who looked a lot like Lena Headey as Cersei. Yeah. There was an Aemond and a Rhaenyra and a George R. R. Martin. Like there were a lot of people who looked like their, their costumes. There was a great Lady Stoneheart too. Just really good ones. But it's hard to top the ones who actually look like the character or the actor. There was, an, there was a headless Lucerus there with an Aemond. There were some really creative ones. And the prizes were good. As you know, we've criticized the con a little bit, but they did give away like substantial prizes. They gave like lots of merch, like $500 went to first prize. They get passes to the studio tour exhibit in Belfast. Pretty good stuff. Pretty good prizes they gave away. And we were, we were cheering hard. And there was an Aria who looked great. Yeah, just good job. There was also a Barristan who wasn't in the contest who really, really looked like Barristan. It was like, wow. Oh yeah, there was this great Danny who had mechanical wings that they like. She they started furled and then she unfurled them, and I think she should have won. Yeah, she, she was, was season wrong. eight Danny, as in that scene where Drogon's yeah. wings uh, open up behind yeah. her, and it really looks like she has the wings. So that that's what she yeah. was going for there. And also, a uh, listener of the podcast, Malcolm was a great Corlys who was in character during the cosplay contest too, because he goes, "Oh well, how did you make this?" And he goes, "Make this? I found this in the <laughs> finest of of, of markets." <laughs> places you know he was super in character he was cracking me up as he like preened in front of the, of the crowd yeah so good times folks this is kind of stuff that you that oh, we can't little, really pass on to you but we hope to encourage dragon. you to go to cons hey look at this baby little baby dragon there yeah. that was brought in they had a whole co see the couple that cosplays Oops, together the family that cosplays together stays together there you go <laughs> mom dad and baby all cosplaying together there. but yeah it was cute you know I, I was looking forward to seeing House of the Dragon cosplay in the wild, and there's a good amount of it, and definitely a good amount of Game of Thrones stuff, too. Yeah, fans, as always, represent the fandom as well as anyone with these costumes. Their effort, the, the love, the time. It was really, really excellent. So we have more photos posted on our social media, especially the Facebook group, but also Shay's Twitter has a lot of it and as at Miranese Not. And you can also just go to my Instagram, which is Ashayatara, and there is a Instagram story highlight with all of the whole thing, just a compilation. So you can just click that and view it. I, I would personally say that the easiest thing to do is to go to my Instagram. And you know, you can give me a follow too while you're at it. <laughs> Might that, as well. that wouldn't be too shabby. <laughs> but uh, you can you don't have to follow me to see my story. You can just creep on my story. I don't mind. I want to bring up one quick thing I forgot to mention on the Steve and Matt Needham panel mm. that they had someone asked the differences and similarities between their characters that because they 
they seem to agree pretty much they're kind of opposites. One's more sneaky, one's more bold, one's more, I don't know, maybe honorable, one's more deceitful. They agreed that they were both intelligent, but Rita pointed out they're both ambitious. And I, yeah, I pointed that out when I true. asked them a question. They and they're are. like, oh, yeah, a good one. <laughs> that is something they have in common. Totally true. Yeah. Unlike Patty Considine's character, Viserys, not particularly ambitious, which is something that we cited a lot. We're discussing him, something that makes him unusual, something that makes him interesting. So he was in two panels. One was the three-person panel with Steve and Alfie. One was by himself as the second-to-last panel of the entire weekend which was just before Kit Harrington, who was the biggest star there. So Patty was the second biggest star there. You could look at it that way, maybe. But the cheers for him were just electric, just huge cheering, people yelling Emmy, Emmy at him, including myself. And just, just so happy to see him. The, the gratitude for his performance was really on display. So the fandom was well represented. If you wanted to express your acclaim for Patty, well... The fandom did that on your behalf. He he really was well-received. Everyone was well-received. Everyone got big cheers, but his it was particularly electric for him. It was like a rock star. People were still shouting. Like, he's in the middle of just talking about something very basic, and people were just like, Patty! You know, it was like, almost got obnoxious by the end, but but it was just <laughs> the love for him was, was really flowing through. Greta Johnson said at first she didn't recognize him because of, you know, he's all the makeup and the, the CGI and everything, and he, he goes, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> now he pointed out that he's not a trained actor like some of the other like a lot of the other people there he just maybe he's more of a natural he didn't say it that way <laughs> he's like i'm just a natural he didn't but i kind of figure that is the truth though because <laughs> he does seem like it and he was just offered the role miguel and ryan just were like miguel in particular said i just remembered working with you and just always wanted to work with you one day and this was the chance and he was really like oh he technically was offered a Game of Thrones script by his agent, not for any particular role. His agent was just trying to get him to try out for it. And this a selection of things he said about it when reading the script. I don't understand it. This is exhausting. This ain't for me, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and he actually watched, but he did actually watch it like during COVID and, and, and got involved and, and really delved, dove into his character by then. And that's when he realized, watching Game of Thrones, the original show, is when he realized... That what people have been saying now for a little while, but it didn't really click for him, which is that cinema and television are really no longer very distinct. And there used to be a much more defined line between cinema and TV. And he says that yeah, that line, like seeing Game of Thrones on TV made that line a lot blurrier for him personally. And because he had watched Game of Thrones fairly recently compared to when he read the script and had read some of Fire and Blood, or at least gotten information on it, he didn't know the prophecy stuff was going to be included. And he got really excited. And he's like, oh, the prophecy stuff is included. Started reading the scripts and was like, oh, hell yeah. That was really cool for him. But he said it was episode three. Reading the script for episode three is when he really started to like get a sense of who this character was. Because episode three is a very emotional episode for Viserys. And that's the kind of stuff he really keys into as an actor. Is the emotions the hunt, of the character. Right? Yes, the hunt. Yeah. Crying in front of the fire, cursing at Otto. He said those curses were improvised. He wasn't, the, 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 screen, the script didn't call for him to say, I just want to go on the effing hunt. You know, like, I don't, all this effing politics. Like, he added that for emphasis. Those, those, not, those weren't scripted. And this leads us into what he did for his character. He took it personally <laughs> when they started mm -hmm. to say things like, Viserys is a little bit, blank a little bit weak he took both of those things personally he's like which is an interesting thing like this is part of his process he really invests himself in the character 
He's really trying to become this person. So he takes things said about them personally. <laughs> so when he heard that this character's a little flat, he became determined to make that not so. When he heard that Viserys is a little weak, he added the curses. He added some of the yelling. He added kicking Damon on the ground and holding the knife to his throat. Those were his additions. Perfect examples of what we're saying about him adding stuff to the character that I think, like, if you take those things out, that's a real loss. Don't you think, Sean? For sure. It, it definitely added a, an intensity to his character. On the other hand, he's also say, saying things like, I didn't look like Yoda, did I? <laughs> he's like on his cane and walking <laughs> through the hall. So he actually emerged that way. He came out walking like he had his cane. Uh, just like, to, you know, to, to remind people of that. Of course, that just made people cheer even harder because that scene was so good. He also said in that moment to make himself like get set for that scene. He was like, okay, so this character is in really ill health. He's like, he just walked through the whole castle to get there. And the climbing those steps must seem a monumental task. His words, quote, a monumental task. The burden of doing all that. And he knew, Viserys knew that would be the last time he climbed the throne when he did it. He would climb the steps for the last time. So he was thinking all these things, holding all these things in his mind. And that's part of why he walked slowly, part of why he dragged it out. He said his hip still hurts. All these months later, his hip still bothers him from filming that scene. He broke three canes <laughs> doing it. <laughs> People asked him about the crown scene, the crown falling off. It's been reported that that was improvised. It sort of was, but he says it was not quite that simple. He said it started as an accident. The crown wasn't staying on very well. It fell off. And they realized it would be good after it happened. Matt picked it up. They rolled with it. Gita Patel, the director of that episode, he said she was fantastic at, at catching on with these improvised, semi-improvised moments and realizing how well they would fit. So she just, they all had this go with the flow mentality that they gelled really well on. But he wanted to be sure. <laughs> he wanted to be sure that scene yeah. happened. So what did he do, Sean? He, he said in the past that he had had similar experiences where an improvised moment ended up getting cut. And it was frustrating enough that he like, it adds, uh, you know, a, a common thing that almost all the actors said was it uncomfortable watching themselves you know they're too critical or it takes them out of the the, the moment or whatever it is but uh, i must be a true actor because i hate watching myself too or listening to yourself but he said like that too yeah he's even more frustrated when he felt like great moments that they filmed don't make the final cut it added to his desire to not want to watch things that he had been part of but that that concern and that fear made him decide because that moment was so great to make sure that it got kept he made sure to drop the crown every time. Every take. He's like, that crown yeah. fell off every take. There's no way they couldn't use it. <laughs> He's like, they had to use it. He forced them. So that's a veteran, like, breaking the system a little. He's like, I know how to make this happen. <laughs> it may have happened anyway, because he says Gita Patel was all for it, but he, she's not the sense. final he decision, said that you know? It wasn't fitting well, because he had, like... The prosthetic, yeah. The, the, yeah, they you were know, trying to make his eye missing. They had uh, extra pieces on his face. The crown didn't fit right. And he also, like, didn't have an arm. So when it falls, he's missing one arm. His other arm has a cane. So Matt has to be the one he to pick it, pick up, it up. So, yeah, yeah, he literally can. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not without revealing, oh, he really does have that arm, doesn't he? He said that it took 10 days to film the eye for an eye scene. And they asked him, like, would you, would his character have ever agreed to the maiming, even though, you know, even though he's a little lenient, even though he can be pushed by Allison and other people? It's like, no, he would not have agreed to that. No matter what, he would not have agreed to have someone else's eye taken out over that, even though he didn't really stand up for his kids that often, except for Rhaenyra. 
he wouldn't have agreed to that, you know, or his grandkids in this case. He agrees that he was too lenient. People ask, do you think your character was too lenient? He's like, yes, but that's balanced by the fact that he was not abusive with his power either. And those are the two things go together. He was too lenient, but he also didn't abuse his power. He wasn't as corrupted. And that's a very yeah, rare thing. I take someone Great being point. lenient over someone abusing their power. I think so too. I take Viserys like, over Aegon the Unworthy or whatever. Great point. <laughs> yeah, Aegon the Unworthy is about yes. as bad as it gets. Yeah. And he also agrees that he should not have been chosen at the Great Council. He's like, yeah, it would have been better to choose Rainey's. He also would have been happier had he not been chosen, his character. He's like, yeah, he would have been off doing history or doing his models or whatever, and he would have been happier with that. <laughs> just <laughs> a had, country lord. With yeah, country toys. lord. He called himself just a country lord, you know, with his with his family and his dogs and all that, yeah. <laughs> and he he thinks Rhaenyra was a jerky teenager about some things, like he was she was difficult to control, but Damon never an option to rule. In his mind, in his character's mind, it's just unthinkable to let Damon rule. And we understood why. We discussed this, Damon's abusive privilege that Viserys didn't do, his corruption, his violence, his sense of entitlement. But what we didn't register or mention was that this wasn't just an issue of making him unfit to rule. Viserys disliked that about him. Even though they were brothers and even though they loved each other, he actively disliked those qualities in his brother, not just as a potential heir. So that was a personal thing too, which I don't know that, I don't know that that ever came up in our discussions, but it, it makes sense. And it, it was good to hear that from him. It was so interesting hearing him talk about how Damon's in love with the series. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's really true. I actually have more of those notes when we talked from the Ryan Condal stuff, but, but yeah, that, which is like the next thing on our list here. So either way we'll be flowing into that. But he also said that him and Matt Smith, just the way they, played off each other as brothers. It just worked so well. He said that we just really loved, we just really dug in together and <laughs> just went at each other. And it obviously worked really well. On the topic of dragons, he said, he, yeah, his character really understood the potential of them. And that was part of this, this is part of his abuse of power leniency thing. It was like, well, the dragons are this thing that you could easily abuse. And you have to be mindful of truly how powerful they are. He said he was a little jealous that the other cast members got to ride dragons until he saw how boring it was. And he did say he got to ride Falcor. <laughs> like on a set <laughs> from the never-ending story. Like he snuck in and wrote it. He was like, you know, yeah. I appreciated how he said that he he felt a lot of resentment towards the audience. Like the audience would always be like, oh, Viserys is so boring. Viserys is so this or that. And like he and, and he, he could feel that they were going to feel that. Because obviously when he was filming it, the show wasn't even there. But like he could yeah. just feel this sense that everyone was going to think Viserys sucked and was boring and all that. And said he, so he said he played that for his character because he felt that Viserys himself felt this kind of resentment of like, I'll show them, they all think this of me, right? But like, like so Patty was thinking, I'll show them. And Viserys also was like, I'll show Corlise, you know, whatever, et, et cetera. Nice. Who, all, who can yeah, sit yeah. the throne today, yeah. Yeah, so this, this is a great point by Shea there. And it just emphasizes just how much Patty bonded with his character and made it him and like felt the same things that his character was feeling or, or felt similarly, at least, if not the same. One fan got up and asked, what would have, what would have happened, or, or rather said, you really are serving Targaryen realness. And he goes, thank you, darling. <laughs> and then they asked, who's your favorite queen from RuPaul's Drag Race? And he was like, Jinx. 
And also Silky, he said, he named me a lot. I'm like, I, I don't think and, any of us have seen Yeah, that yeah, show. we don't know Drag Race. But he also later on when they said, oh, well, what house would you be in if you could have been in any house? And he said, House of Davenport, which is also a Drag Race reference. <laughs> He's clearly a big And fan. the notable thing is that <laughs> he got he got really into RuPaul's Drag Race with Emily Carey. Like they, they would bond over that on set. They both were into like, this young Allison. And so that's something they had in common. And so I really, really appreciated him referencing that. At some point, I had that mixed up. At some point, I, I became aware that he was a fan of Drag Race, but I thought it was like car racing. Ah. <laughs> like, I, I totally missed the. I thought it was short for reference. Dragon, Drag Race, ah. Dragon. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, he also said something that clar- clarified something that was surprising. He said Viserys actually thought Rhaenyra would like the fact that he was going to marry her best friend, Allison. He was surprised that she took it negatively. He said, weirdly, he thought that. Like, he was, Patty Constantine's like, I don't know why he thought that, but he did think that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can see why someone might think that it's a good thing that he's marrying his daughter's best friend, someone his daughter's guaranteed to like, rather than, like, Lena or some strange, you know, like, Again, I also see why someone could 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 believe that his daughter would be extra mad, but it's not the weirdest thing for me to think that Viserys would be like, oh, well, at least Rhaenyra loves and cares for my wife. Like, it seems like a win, maybe. That maybe explains why he didn't bother to consult her. He was just so sure she would like it. Yeah, know? yeah. And, but of course, Allison <laughs> should know. And Allison did yeah. know, yeah. you know, that, that it was meant to be kept a secret. So, you know, they knew that it was a little shady, I think, still. He also expressed, like humorous frustration that everyone was like, oh, pervy Viserys gonna, considering marrying the 12-year-old, you know, and he's like, my character was the only one against it. Everyone <laughs> else was telling him to do it. <laughs> he's like, I, he was like, I was against it, you know. Another fan got up and asked him, why was Viserys such an absentee father with regard to his children with Allison? He's like, and he goes, he was busy with his model. <laughs> so he admits like, yeah, he's like, but then he gave a serious interest. Like he was detached. He, his, he was detached from them because Rainier came from Emma and he never loved Allison the way he loved Emma. And he always, and he never got over his guilt over what he did to her. And he never got over his blame and he never stopped making, he never stopped inflicting suffering on himself. He never stopped believing he deserved to suffer. And that created this, wedge between him and his children with Allison, which isn't an excuse, but it is, again, like a lot of things, it is an explanation. That was a a good uh, insight that stood out to me that he made is that he was never requesting medical attention. He never, yeah. He, yeah, he felt like they offered this this death. This all was, he was, I don't know if he used the word curse, but he, he wanted to clarify that the scenario, right, that he wasn't choosing the, the baby over the mother. Yeah. The, the choice, you know, he, he felt that needed to be clarified that it was either they were both going to die or maybe they could save the baby. Yeah. But that even if that's the choice and it's tough and it sucks, but he still kind of made the decision without involving her or informing her and, and making it, her suffer he and all that. Like, yeah. Right. And he, he felt this guilt over how he handled that for the rest of his life, the show, whatever. That, that was like the driving underlying piece of him behind everything else to his death. And that was also an improvised moment to decide to set my love love, moment at the end is where his, where his mind is still at, you know? Yeah. And that was really well explained. He did a great job with that. Like once again, the way he played the Sarah really worked because he made him, he played him emotionally. And by doing that, he was able to 
remember and key in and lock into like his feelings for Emma and all that and, he would, and to hold tight to that and keep it consistent throughout the season. He said episode three was his favorite probably because of all the, the range of emotion he got to put on display there and all the different one-on-ones he had with so many different characters, so many different actors. But he also like, but inciting some of his favorite scenes, he also really liked the scene with Millie in episode one where he tells her about the dream for the first time. He was a particular fan of that one. And that, that, that question, that came up from a, a fan question. Someone who was dressed as Rhaenyra, when they got to the mic, said, hello, dad. And he goes, hello, daughter, you're home late again. <laughs> so he had a real good time playing with the fans. I, I, he's also probably in the extrovert category, but you never know for sure. <laughs> yeah, and he's also in a band, which I, is, you know, a good sign towards that. He performs live all the time. Yeah. At the end of this episode, assuming we have enough time, we, I gathered a bunch of questions that were asked to basically everyone. Like almost every, like... Who, who was your favorite character? Have you read the books? Did you watch the show? Who Almost would you all play? The, who would you play otherwise? Almost all of them were asked these. So I put these in a group rather than going through them one at, one at a time. And, and that's, that kind of shines through in some of these cases, especially on the, do you watch yourself question? Like the introverts are all like, no. And the extroverts are like, yeah, you know, well, why wouldn't I? You know, so it, it's really interesting to, to think about the, the actors in that light and how that reflects their characters as well. I was the first one to get sick in our group, so I couldn't go to the con on Sunday. But Aziz asked him about what Viserys' opinion would be about Helena and her prophetic statements and dreams. Yeah, he didn't have like a, a straight answer because he doesn't really know what would have happened. But he's like, yeah, I guess my character was too busy being an absentee father. He said, I would have liked to see that. It would have been really interesting. He said, why didn't you tell me you could do that? He's <laughs> like, that would have been his reaction. He's like, I was like, well, it's your fault, absentee dad. Yeah. But yeah, he, he took it. Yeah, I kind of, he kind of got that that couldn't have happened because he was an absentee father to that side of his family. But it would have been fascinating if he had realized his own kid was having those dreams that he called so rare and special and powerful. But, and Aziz got a free King Viserys Funko Pop for for standing in the line and asking the question. Oh, it looks like he's going to grab it. Grab a prop. You know, Here proof. it is. I didn't think Our about first it. House of the Dragon Funko. We also got a Yara Greyjoy one because yeah. Gemma was supposed to be there, but... Yeah. She wasn't. Yeah, what was the shot? I didn't think about it until just now, but I wonder if there might have been a negative spin to him realizing Helena was having dreams. Oh, yeah, he might have obsessed with that. He might have been like, oh, Helena's the true queen of Aegon. He might have started trying to interpret her dreams and misinterpret something. Every night, try to supplant Rhaenyra with Helena. No, I actually do think that if Viserys had been aware, it would not have been for the best of the realm. Like, I I don't know that I think it would have been good for the realm if Viserys knew that Helena had prophetic dreams. Oh, by the way. I think it would have led to him doing chasing after prophecies, which I don't think you should ever chase after prophecies. This reminds us of another thing that we brought up during the season that we weren't sure on. He pointed out that, yeah, he couldn't tell people about the dream. He he believed that everyone would think he was crazy if he if he publicized his thoughts on the dream, so, which we said. We were like, that's probably the case. He probably doesn't didn't tell more people because he thought it'd be crazy, which didn't change the point that he could have told like a couple more people. Yeah. But you gotta still, hedge your bets yeah. a little bit, right? But like, still, th- yeah. there's this concern if you tell people they might think you're crazy. But there's also this concern if you don't tell anyone, you might die and no one knows about yeah. it anymore. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah, so <laughs> good point. Okay, so Pat, Ryan Condal, he said that he talked a little bit about show running and and how you know it's it's just so difficult that you're he he's, he'd likened it as putting out an apartment fire with a garden hose. He said that they wrote the show and they finished writing the writing phase and then COVID started like really soon after that. So 
some of the reason the writing was so good on House of Dragons, they got to just redo some of the writing. They're like, well, we got more time. Let's just really tighten the writing up. Maybe and they've we'll got make a little more time. time. And we have to probably tweak things a little bit knowing that we're going to be filming with COVID stuff going on. So they had to go back even if they wouldn't That's have. That's true. That's true. You know, another thing that they did that apparently is, I don't know, relatively unique was rehearsals. I, I guess that it's not as common to they, they were presenting it as though they were like so thankful to have these rehearsals as though they don't normally get that. And I wonder if that had to do with maybe Ryan Condal's style or just the size of the project or maybe COVID concerns. They maybe rehearsals with smaller groups before they get a bunch of people in there. Yeah. But yeah, I think it, it is a little I'm bit sure of, it helped things be better. Yeah, I think know? it's a little bit of the Nathan Fielder, the rehearsal mentality of like, you know, if you rehearse <laughs> it just right, then you'll have fewer things on the when it actually matters and everyone's at risk of COVID. I know they're both <laughs> laughing at me. I see it, but I'm not joking at all. I'm quite serious when I say that rehearsing for something can lead to it going much more smooth and you don't yes. have to go the extreme Nathan Fielder route, but that can't hurt either. They really cut all the. We're not off. laughing at you or doing rehearsals. We're laughing at the imagery brought to mind by thinking of Nathan Fielder's. Rehearsals. I'm just picturing Ryan Condal. I wanted to make sure that the that the episode filming went according to plan, so I made sure to invite the entire cast for a rehearsal. <laughs> so sounds normal. I had to ask myself, have gone far enough. <laughs> the only the only thing he, he said, as far as production and how things are going, he said they're done with the writing for season two. Which, given what we just said, the writing will undergo some changes. It's not set in stone, but that's where they're at right now. And he said the reason this kind of works out that way is that most of the things that happen in the production process cannot be done at the same time. You have to finish this filming before you can do the production. To finish production before you can do post-production. You have to blah, blah, blah. The only thing you can overlap is post-production with the writing for next season, which is why they had already started with writing while the show was out and running and in post-production, which they've they've been writing season two for like a year now. So they've, they've gotten quite a lot done. And... And I also think it's like something he spoke about, but it made me think of it, which was, for example, young Amon Leo Ashton, when he filmed his scenes on Vagar, right? And he, think about reshooting when yeah, he has like aged. 12. He has aged yeah. significantly when they want to reshoot something with him, but they can't know what they need to reshoot until they get into post-production and they are actually editing him on Vagar. You know, just anyways, so Real that tricky, was kind of yeah. interesting to me. Yeah, like it just goes to show like how much they have to do and how many things that can go wrong or how many balls in the air, how many how easy it is to just have one thing go wrong. Yeah, he talked about how much of a nerd he is. Like it's such a different demeanor he has than David and Dan. Like someone asked, I think, who the biggest like prankster on set was for Game of Thrones. And there was, they were like, oh, David and Dan were the biggest practical jokers for sure. And Ryan Connell does not seem like a practical joker. <laughs> he's like, you know, he's like, no, I don't, I don't, May have fun with seeing other people you know, laughed at or whatever, which not all practical jokers like that. There's harmful ones. He but, sides with Amond, not with the strong Valarians and uh, Avon. <laughs> yeah, he wouldn't have done the pink dread. David and Dan would have done the pink dread. That's a great, okay. <laughs> that's a perfect example to yeah. show you. So like, whereas they're like the practical jokers, a little more broy. He's like, look, you can tell I'm a nerd. Like, look what's behind me. He's got his display of props behind him, and he's talking about how much he loved Andor and Lord of the Rings and how people were at, he gave his theory on where Blackfire is in the books. Like, I think that the, the John Connington's faction have it, which, of course, we've been saying that for years too. But it's good that he says that. Like, that's not the kind of thing you would know but I just reading the books. You have to, to have, like, delved in. What's David that? and Dan give, like, their thoughts on where Blackfire yeah, is. Yeah, they would have no idea. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, someone has it. I don't know. They would have no answer. Yeah. <laughs> 
I think it was Kit, by the way, that told the story of Dave and Dan. It was because of the writing nose a script thing. where his nose had been cut off or whatever. Yeah. He's like, okay. Season yeah. one, he's going to lose his nose from the white, from <laughs> fi- fighting one of those whites. That's what it was. You're totally right. Yeah, uh, that's so funny. Though. So then, yeah, he pointed out how the cla- like it's important to build on the classics like Tolkien and White and Lewis and how George R. R. Martin's like continuing on that path. And it struck me as like, yeah, like people copied Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and and these others, and people are now copying George R. R. Martin. You know, it's the same kind of thing. Like he, like I think milestones. It was, yeah, he was pointing out that you need to have tropes in order to subvert them. Yeah. You couldn't have Martin without having Tolkien. You know? Yes, right. And things that George is doing now will eventually, like that were, were inversions of tropes when he started doing them are becoming tropey because so many people, other people are doing them. You know, not they're not there yet probably, but because it takes a while to establish a trope and, and a lot of quantity has to be done in a lot of places and a lot of ways and consistently to, to develop to that level. Next up, he he actually showed the crowd a deleted scene, which we'll all get to see. We're not going to spoil it. We won't talk about it too much. It's online. You can look it up. It's out there it's and out it'll there. be officially released it. as part For of the DVDs, sure. which yeah. are apparently coming very soon, like this month, December 2022. If you look up House of the Dragon, Bela Rainey's deleted scene, it'll come up on Google for you. No worries. One thing you may not know in watching it, I will prime you, the scene takes place while Rainier is in labor. So that that isn't clear from just watching it. So Condal pointed that out. He's excited to show more of Bela and Reyna in season two. Was a little disappointed they had to cut that. He basically blamed HBO for cutting that. He said, not blame them. He, he, he was understanding. He's like, look, HBO, you, you think of it from an American or a British perspective or in a Western perspective where HBO is this prestige TV and it doesn't really matter how long the episodes are. But H, the way HBO airs in other countries, they do have those constraints. It's not just on a streaming service. Sometimes it's put on a major network. And so it kind of has to conform more to some of the time. So they do have some restrictions on... It keeping a certain length. So they said, he said that HBO is pretty understanding about let them go, letting them go over, but they still have to be like, eh, you got to keep it in line. So this scene was really good, but they felt like some of the same stuff was communicated elsewhere. So it would have been a good character moment, but it didn't move the plot. Yeah, and I will say, I think if I went to that episode, I could easily find you a scene that I think should have been cut for this one. That's my opinion as a viewer. I think that they made the wrong call here because just having seen it and seeing how much it adds to Bela, to Rainey's, and yeah, I don't, and it's really short. Maybe so, they'll make up for know. that later. Like if Bela yeah. has a scene that imparts the same sort of like attitude or whatever, yeah, I mean, maybe they'll make up for it later, but I kind of agree. I, I certainly know. don't agree with it being cut. But I'm also a huge Bela fan and a Rainey's fan, and I don't feel like season one of House of the Dragon gave me a reason to say to someone like Sean, I'm a Bela and Rainey's fan. Sean would be like, why? What well, Rainey's he could probably. But Bela, a little yeah. bit. Bela but even Bela, even Rainey's, I don't think had as much to shine. This that scene made me appreciate Rainey's more. I'll yeah. Say that. So, you know, yeah, it was, good. it was, like I said, good character building. It was, yeah, yeah, I liked the scene a lot. I wish it wasn't cut. A lot of, my, generally, when I see cut scenes, usually my, my feeling is, I'm glad I saw that. I appreciate mm-hmm. that new little bit of insight. But I understand why it was cut from the main. Yes, exactly. I feel that. But in this one, I didn't understand why it was cut. I feel like that. Well, that's that's why I brought the time stuff because, like, it's it's not. It wasn't a creative decision. It was like we got to cut something. So you're right. I know. I know you're saying that they could have cut something else, and I don't disagree. I'm just saying that they did have. It wasn't just ah, we don't like the scene. No, he actually said it's canon. The scene, it was cut, but it's canon. Oh, yeah, that's a great point, Aziz, that sometimes when scenes are cut, and I think sometimes they're less likely to show us a cut scene if it's no longer canon, but sometimes you see a cut scene and it's like, no, that doesn't fit the canon of the show. Like, it can't. But sometimes it really is just like a little deleted moment that did happen, and this is one of those. Yeah, he said, he specifically said, that scene happened, we just weren't able to show it to you. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, and he said, there's lots of other things like that. Like you can infer a lot of other things that would have happened. We just don't have time to show you every single person's reaction to every single thing, every conversation. And that's something blah, blah, I think blah. I've talked about a lot on the podcast in general. Like when we talk about plot holes or when we talk about explanations for certain things, I've brought up, take some time to do the creative exercise, the imaginative exercise of thinking, what would make this work for you? Well, what do you think would make this plot hole, this seeming plot hole work for you? Can yeah. you think of something? If you can't, you're probably not being creative enough. And it's probably not actually a plot hole. It just isn't satisfying to you because you aren't able to think of it. But like, there's a million little headcanon moments. And that's kind of where things like fan fiction flourishes and stuff like that is that there are those little moments that you can fill in the blanks and, and think that they did happen, I suppose. I think about this a lot too. When there's something in a, a movie or show, or whatever that irks me, like why didn't this or that? And sometimes I realize the solution might have cost a million dollars. You know, they need a whole new scene after mm-hmm. call actors back in or like rewrite scenes, all this. But sometimes it's just like one line of dialogue. Some ADR, it, yeah. It almost frustrates me extra. Like, well, why did they do that? I'm not a professional Hollywood writer and I came up with a pretty good solution. Why couldn't they just do that in the first place? It makes me extra upset. Yeah, I guess you're right. Sometimes it can't do that because you're like, well, I could think of a solution, but it's not there. Whereas I can just kind of put myself in the headspace of being like, well, why why didn't Rainey go out the back door and and not explode all those people? Well, because of this reason, this reason, or this reason. Maybe she wanted to make a... You know, like, if you can think of a solution, even if it isn't like your best solution, like, well, then it's not a plot hole. Yeah. It's not that she just forgot that there's a back door. It's that she wanted to make a big showing of it or whatever the reason is that you want to say. It's really hard to prove a plot hole when it's about what a character would or wouldn't do and not like a logistical thing. Like, wait, that hole wasn't mm-hmm. there before. Like that that door wasn't there before. Like if it's something physical like that, that's that's But it's actually a plot hole. Well, that hole was yeah, that not hole. there. <laughs> that's a plot <laughs> hole. Yeah, so moving on, we still have a lot to cover. Jason asked him if Rainey's would actually was considering going green when Allison asked her that. And he said, no, not really. Nothing Allison could have said would have changed who Rainey's is. She's a Targaryen and an old school Targaryen. The wavering may have been part an act just so like if she says, no, I'm definitely siding with the blacks, then they may have just killed her. (laughs) So she had to, I mean, Allison probably wouldn't have done that, but Rainey's doesn't know that. And maybe someone else would have done that to her. So she had to kind of act like she was considering it, but she wasn't really. Ryan also confirmed a lot of what we said about the choking scene, that Damon is a fairly damaged individual and that we want to root for him. And that's why the scene bothered people, that we want to root for him. But he's really not a good guy. Like, he's not necessarily a bad guy, but he's not a we, good guy. You can't just... We want to root for him, but we shouldn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and this is where he expanded on it. We guessed it pretty well. We said, yeah, he was mad that he... To find out that Viserys didn't look on him as his heir. And that bothered him to find out that he wasn't included because by not telling him about the prophecy that proved that he never considered him an option as heir. And that's why he lashed out. But Ryan expanded on it. That's the part we got. We, we nailed that, I think, pretty well at the time for explaining it. But Ryan added to this some additional nuances that he says he was really hurt by Viserys rejecting him and not making him his hand. More the hand thing. He's like, yeah, Damon maybe kind of wants the crown, but more than the crown, he wanted to, his brother to trust him and to rely on him. And he sees Rhaenyra as an extension of Viserys. That's another thing that we didn't fully grasp, is that that when he choked Rhaenyra, he would have choked Viserys if he was there. But Rhaenyra, as the extension of the closest he could get to his brothers doing this to him, he was mad at his brother, not at her. But he's not a great guy, so he 
choked her because <laughs> she was there and she was the one saying the words, kill the messenger sort of vibe, stopping short of actually killing her, obviously. But yeah, he, he tried to kill him. another messenger too, right? Yeah, absolutely. He <laughs> bludgeoned that other guy and in Fire and Blood, he does that too. So that's in line both with his book and show character. Like that's a consistency there. So that's the part I didn't fully grasp that I don't think we, we mentioned that part of that was that he sees Rainier as an extension of his brother, which is part of why he wanted to marry her and get that same acclaim and love and that he sought as a younger person. It's a pretty nuanced take there. I was like, oh, that's, that's pretty interesting. I like that. It does make the still very uncomfortable scene, but it, it does explain it a lot better. Like the foot thing, like it's, it gives it more, it's still hard. It still maybe has some problems, but it does help a lot to hear the full explanation and to see that there's more nuance and thought was, was given there, even if it didn't fully translate on screen. It doesn't justify what he did, but we better understand why he yes, did it. Absolutely. Doesn't justify it even a little. Yeah, totally. Now, when he talked about Blackfire and where he, th he thinks that John Connington and Aegon in the book have it, he was asked, where do you know where Blackfire and Dark Sister are? And he says, well, I can't comment because George just like drops spoilers sometimes. When he's telling me things, he just accidentally drops spoilers. And so he says, I can't say because I know things. And then he goes on to say where he thinks Blackfire is. And he says, I don't know where, like, George didn't tell me this. So back that up. <laughs> that means he does know where Dark Sister is because he says, I don't know where Blackfire is. This is my guess based on fan stuff. But he said, I, I can't comment. But then he goes and comments on one of the two things, which means well, he we know must Black be talking about the other one. Yeah, well, we know Dark Sister got taken beyond yeah. the wall. We, yeah, and, and we had asked George, Shea had asked George whether Blood Raven took Dark Sister to the wall. And he said, yes, he gave us a straight answer years ago at a convention. So Ryan Condal may know more than that, or maybe he just knows that. Maybe he just knows the same thing we know. And di maybe Ryan doesn't know that that was clarified because that's never been like written anywhere. You would, yeah. ha you would have to be a fan of our show or to know people who listen to the show to know that. Or read the Sospake Martins or something. Yeah, you, could, like, you could be reading Westeros or Sospake Martin and know that information. Yeah, there's and probably a few have. other podcasts that mention it too. But yeah, you would you know. the point is it's not out oh. there that Ryan definitely would have seen that, you know. You might know that if you were a showrunner working with George Martin. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and, and we're hearing him just drop spoilers here and there. Alfie Allen Theon. He was originally, speaking of Viserys, he read for Viserys, of course. Viserys third, not Viserys first. When he was, you know, Danny's brother, that was the first role he read for. And they came back to him and they were like, maybe not Viserys for you. Would you rather be, or actually they asked him, would you rather be Jon Snow or Viserys? And he's like, well, obviously Jon Snow. But then they came back and were like, well, not Jon Snow. Would you rather be Theon or Rob? And asked him to read for both of them. And they were like, okay, you're Theon. His audition scene was the Iron Price, Gold Price scene from season two when he re was reunited with his father. So interestingly, his audition scene wasn't even a season one scene. So that's kind of neat. He described how he and Kit were two of the very few actors as part of the show to go from pilot all the way to the end. Well, technically, he wasn't at the end. He died three episodes before the end, but pretty close. Close enough. And that was kind of that gave them a special bond with him and a few other people. He very sneakily wore a pirate's hat and then an Alcon hat, a baseball hat, back-to-back -back days, which... A black and yellow pirate's both hat. Both black and yellow hats. So he was wearing gray joy colors on the sly. <laughs> he was impressed that the final scene turned, changed people's mind about him so much. He thought that was like a big deal. He also thought his death was necessary. Like, yeah, he needed to go out to make up for what he had done before. And also that that final scene was the hardest he ever trained. Like our learning archery was nothing compared to training 
for that final scene. He said the the torture scene was the hardest thing he filmed and was a little disappointed that the showrunners didn't actually give him much help there. He's like, should I lose weight? Should I do this and that? And they just they didn't really say much to him. So he, he criticized them for, for that a little bit. He, he seemed to say it, he was prepared to like lose a bunch of weight and emaciate himself for the torture bits. But they they said, oh, here's a nutritionist, not like here's a psychologist and a trainer and all the other stuff you might need to go through that. And he said he's thankful that he didn't in the end. He's worried about <laughs> yeah. how much toll that might have taken on him. Yeah, because that is that does sound really hard, like especially given all these like filming locations they're in, like they're already like roughing it in a lot of the ways. One thing he said that was a little surprising. He said he wasn't actually he didn't actually take Winterfell to live up to his father's expectations so much as a, a straight desire for power, which, you know, that's that's his take. And Book Theon isn't the same. But I think that's an interesting take because we always did see it more as like a big thing living up to his father. Maybe it's a little both. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's both. But, I, but I, it's still valid that Alfie saw it that way. He thought it was hilarious that he was tricked by his sister into hitting on her. He thought that was really funny. <laughs> and he got really close with Ewan Rian Ramsey because of how isolated their story was. He'd like they were just the two of them and some extras sometimes or some characters that weren't consistently a part of it. He says they drank a lot together, <laughs> like a lot of drinking, <laughs> but he's quit drinking since then. Also said they would discuss their scenes a lot before, but not talk about it so much afterwards. It's <laughs> moved on. Just move on. Just that. That's tough. Let's move on. His favorite to have dialogue with was Gemma Whalen. That's that's Yara slash Asha, of course. He just really just thought she was really great to work with, but also Kit because of his start. They started together. They were they began together, and so it just had it was a little special to work with him. Also Richard Madden, but Richard Madden was gone after a few seasons, so that that didn't last as long. He really liked the bath scene, the razor shaving scene. He just thought that was really interesting, like the psychology behind that and just the way it was filmed. And his the final scene he filmed was his final scene where he's just being lit on fire in the funeral pyre, which he said, that's really unusual because as you saw with like his audition scene, it's very rare that film that scenes get filmed in order. So his last day of filming was his actual final scene, which is highly unusual. And Gwendolyn Christie was there that day. He said, we had a kiss and a cuddle and I cried. She didn't. <laughs> and Sophie was there too. He said Sophie was there too for that last day. She's a legend, he said. And, and D&D gave him the original storyboard design for his death. So he got a, a very nice memento to take home. Yeah. Christopher Hibjew was really funny. Super funny guy. A lot of a, a different demeanor than a lot of the other actors. Maybe because he's Norwegian. Maybe not. Just he, he liked to emphasize his Norwegian-ness. He said that it really helped him being raised on tales of Vikings, which are a big part of their culture and all that. He said it, Vikings have a lot in common with the free folk. So he thought that fit really well for him. He was able to kind of bring some of that out. Greta Johnson of Official Hot Tea Podcast thought, you know, she's from Alaska. She, she was like, don't worry, you guys cold without hats. And he's like, the hats were a discussion. <laughs> he said, they are stupid people for not wearing hats. <laughs> he said, in Norway, we wear hats like we do this. It's like, we're not stupid about it. He asked them to get them hats because they were cold. And they said, we don't have a budget for hats. What? <laughs> Game of Thrones doesn't have a budget for hats. Are you kidding me? So he contacted his, a Norwegian hat company and got them some wool and got them some hats. <laughs> so good job, Tormund. He may have prevented some frozen ears from happening. <laughs> He loved to talk about how his character changed a lot over the seasons. Like from the way his character was developed to what it turned into, it really changed. And he had a lot, he indirectly affected that with the examples we gave at the beginning of the show, how he 
just he didn't have lines. So he just started to like make faces in the background, eat chicken suggestively. He said, I'm just going to eat this chicken like sexily or like flirtly, uh, flirtatiously eat my chicken. And like you said, Sean, they just, the editor or some of the people, they just noticed that and used him more and more. And he said, he started, I was like, I started off as a villain, went to friend slash helper character to comic relief to love story. I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. Tormund really did evolve a lot like that character. And it, and it was way not what they had planned for him. He was probably the most entertaining of the guests. Like yeah. I, I mentioned that all of them had good stories and were kind of quick-witted, but he, I would say probably the biggest difference was more of an extrovert, right? Like most of the others described themselves as being introverted, had a hard time seeing themselves on screen. But Tormund was like, I love watching myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he had a lot of jokes. He was willing to like do the lines. People asked him to do a line. And it's just kind of awkward. Actually, like, I don't want to do the line, you know, but he was like, yeah. oh yeah. Christian Naren was very, he didn't want to say Hodor, you know. <laughs> just to interrupt about that, Christian Naren was like, don't ask me, yeah, don't ask me to say Hodor or whatever. But he goes, yeah, the role did really open a lot of doors for me. And he realized what he had said. <laughs> He's like, oh no. He goes, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't mean to make that pun. And then, because he's like, the crowd's going to jump all over him for that. We're like, yeah. He's, he's it, like, yeah. Ah, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> yeah. One of the funniest moments, maybe if I had to pick one highlight moment of the the, the whole con was when uh, was when uh, someone asked Christopher Hidju about, because he did, he was in a lot of the battle scenes. And he was a little of the, you know, stunt action-y type stuff. And someone asked him if he had a stunt double. And he just kind of looks over his shoulder he was always unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He said, I like fighting. He's like, it's great. The stunt, he's like, the battle scenes are great when you're filming with stunt doubles. Because he's like, if you're filming with the actors, you have to be real careful. Because you, you hit them, they might complain or bleed. But the stunt doubles, they love the pain. You can hit them as hard as you want <laughs> and they're happy. <laughs> Someone asked him if they had a kid. Like, what about this Tormund Brienne stuff? He's like, who wrote that shit? You know, <laughs> but he was joking. He's like, what if they had a kid? And Ashea, like, I can't pronounce this name very well. You, 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 you've been studying Norwegian, so you got a better sense of this. U-R-D. It's one of the three Norns. So he said, you know, oh. if they had a kid, what would they name it? It would be Urd. He's like, what if it's a boy? It would be Urd. He's like, if it was a girl? It's like, Urd. And then later someone asked him, what if he had his own direwolf for dog? He's like, Urd. He's the same name. So it's one of the three Norns? Yeah. Oh, that's great. So It's one of the fates. Yeah, exactly. That's why it was a great significance to the name he was saying. It wasn't just a random name. Yeah. Clearly, uh, yeah, he wants if a boy or a girl, that's the name. He <laughs> said Tormund's character doesn't understand rejection, which is why he kept pursuing Brienne, even though she had didn't like him at all. He's like very clear, like Brienne just didn't like him. You know, like let's be clear on that. Like it was very one sided. You know, <laughs> and but she, but he's very loyal, and once he's like into her, like it's hard for him to not be into her because he's you know he also said she betrayed him by choosing a Danish actor <laughs> Nikolai Gosterwaldo <laughs> but, but the flame still burns and someone asked if he would if he had to fight her who would win he, first actually someone said who if he had to fight Jamie who would win he laughed he's like well that's easy and but if he had to he's like the real question is if I had to fight her he's like well I would let her win because he wouldn't be able to see himself beating her he's like well she might win anyway yeah, but he wouldn't yeah, try exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. he, yeah. he said they filmed Brienne's knighting that scene was filmed like 28 times. Like, whoa. He also says the Tormund Giant's babe story where he, you know, the the he's the, he was nursed by a giant. He said, that's, he says, that's canon. <laughs> he's like, that's probably the true one, the true version. He says, as far as he's concerned. Yeah, yeah exactly. He, says he doesn't understand irony or Tormund doesn't understand irony. And he liked that. He liked that he's naive and pure and and very loyal. And, and when you love someone, it's deep and forever. He said that was an enjoyable thing. He also, yeah, I think someone asked him, 
if he had been in Jamie's position, if he would have killed Ares or if he would have been loyal. And he said, Tormund's loyal, but he's not loyal to a throne. Yeah. That, yeah, he would have killed Ares also. He said he's loyal to the people, and that's who, and so he would have killed the Mad King because he was being cruel to the people. So he's like, yeah, he would have done that. He also said he played, he his favorite to work with was Kit Harrington, partly because they just did so many scenes together. Just a lot of it was quantity, but he said they actually played, they tried to play Risk a lot in the tent between things. They started to play Game of Thrones Risk, but they argued over why the rules were the way they were. They didn't argue. They were just confused why the North only had like one entrance. And they were like, this is, this is too unrealistic. So they ner- they actually got too geeky over Game of Thrones Risk and played the regular one because they didn't like the way it was set up, which is just, that fits for ga- for gamers, you know. He said that the climbing the wall scene was an actual wall that they really built and really climbed and that he kept destroying it because he did competitive climbing as a, as a child or as a young person. And when you climb ice and you have an axe, you really drive that axe in deep because it's a re- and you're really climbing. You really got to make sure you're not going to fall to your death or whatever. So in this, so he still had that with him, and he was just axing that really hard and destroying it. <laughs> so, <laughs> and finally, he was asked, "What ending would you have chosen for the show?" And he was like, "Most of the answers, he was just like, he had an answer like quick, like he was just like smooth, fast." This is what he thought about, and he was like, "That the White Walkers won." It's like climate change, you know? And it was like, oh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, I think yeah. they know more about that in Norway where the cold is already super cold. So when it gets even colder, they're really, it's a real problem. So, you know, I think those things are closer to the heart up there. All right, let's talk about Kit Harrington. This was a really big deal. The crowd was huge for him. Just the biggest we saw by far. Like it was the last panel of the last thing. It was the actual last thing of the... Yeah, the, the big surprise was he confirmed that the Jon Snow show was coming. <laughs> he said nothing whatsoever about it. After this convention, there were all sorts of rumors, videos, social media posts. The Snow show is... No, not one thing was confirmed. However, it did make me more suspicious or at least thoughtful about it. And I do think it's going to happen. I'll explain why. But first of all, Kit Harrington will build up to that. First of all, in terms of how big a star he is, the average, autog- like most of the autograph signings were $60. A few of them were $80. Like I think Alfie Allen and Patty Considine were $80. Most of them were 60 Kit Harrington was 250 So he was triple the second highest cost and, co- and quadruple the lower cost. So just way more. And like I said, the room was never more full than it was when he was did his panel. And that's the very unusual for convention for the last thing to be the most attended. That's not usually how conventions... Yeah, you know, I gotta go. say, I don't get it. Lost He's just a big star. Just lost on me. <laughs> so he... So yeah, there were like the, 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 the seats that were normally not filled throughout the weekend were jam-packed. It was just boom. Yeah, people yelling for him, cheering. He said it was the first time he had spoken publicly about the show since the end of it. So it was kind of a big deal. And that couple of random questions he was asked, who would he choose as king? Well, he said, Jon Snow would have chosen Bran and stuck with it. That's his family. But Kit would say Jon Snow. And he said, I hate that I'm saying this. No, that I hate I'm saying this, but I think Jon Snow. He wanted his own character. He also thought that he also wanted to kill the Night King himself, but didn't say it was wrong for Arya to do it. Just that had he written it. Yeah. He's like, I wanted to do that. Yeah. As a personally wanted to fight the Night King, but he didn't say it was the wrong choice for the show. Just personally, he wanted to fight the Night King. He, he said Bastards, Battle of the Bastards filming was the most intense and scary because they had done such a good job with Hard Home. And he was like, well, how do we top that? Right. It was a lot of pressure. But, and he said that was his peak effort and work. Like the most work he ever put in was for that. Really interesting question he was asked was, would Ned 
have agreed with him killing Danny, given how Ned even disagreed with killing of Ares, which is like, ooh, tough one. He was like, yeah, that's a tough question. I think Ned would have disagreed. I think he, Ned would have been against John killing Danny. But he thought, Kit Harrington thought it was correct for the story, the way they had laid it out. And he's like, oh, I know this is going to be controversial. And Ashea, was this controversial? Uh, yeah, it was very controversial. <laughs> I tweeted it from the comfort of my hotel bed and got like really ratioed. I probably like the, the tweet might have had like 400 or 500 likes or something, but it had like 900 quote retweets, <laughs> which is ridiculous. And then all these like, news outlets were like, via Miranese not, John Kit Harrington says killing Danny felt right. And I was like, okay, I didn't need the shout out for that one because my mentions are still recovering. I still have like tarnation. Like, I don't know. Fangirls, like fan, fan people. They're not just girl, whatever. Fans can be very extreme to the point where they were like sharing like really inappropriate content, hating on Kit over. Anyways, people need to chill out. But it was mostly it's also to like, me. I can take it because I'm. It's not like they're hating on me. I didn't mean anything. It's also me. like a, a little easy to take out of context too, because Kit's not necessarily saying he likes the scenario they set up. No, just given the scenario yeah. they set up, yeah, and he, that's what it people was said right in the applause too. Yeah. They said, "Hey, look, like if you, if you even if you don't like that they made Danny do this, Danny did it." So now what what comes from that? And I was like, yeah, yeah. I agree, but yeah. whatever. Agreed, I really yeah. don't care. I don't feel strongly one way or another on it. So they, I, them getting on me about it really didn't mean anything. It was just annoying. But yeah. Uh, yeah, he totally. was right that it was controversial. Yeah, he knew that to <laughs> be like, uh, you know, it was going to be controversial. But yeah, he saw that reaction coming. But he also said that, but he thought his character deserved execution for doing it. He thought the writing yeah. was correct, but he also thought John deserved to be executed for it. He also thought that John would live out his life traumatized because even though he wasn't, he thought going to the wall was getting off easy for him. He was like, that's the ending John would have wanted. It's already where you send criminals. It's already where he's familiar. He was already kind of happier there in the first place. So to him, he's like, he got off easy, but he has to live out his life having both his lovers die in his arms. The only two people that he loved in this life, he they died in his arms. One And both times because he was on the opposite side from them. One he did personally, the other regret he didn't kill her, but he led the he led the forces that killed her, even though it was her the one making the attack. And Danny was too, in a sense, not, not quite as directly. I know some people, yourself included, could hear all of that discussion and hear about what John, where Jon Snow's at and be like, okay, I'm a little more interested in the Snow show or have more confidence. And I gotta say, I go the opposite direction, knowing that it's just gonna be sad sack John being morose, just being sad John Snow. I'm a little less excited just to go the opposite way because I know... Oh, I didn't say I'm more excited. I said I think it's more likely. Okay. Other people said that they thought that they were more looking forward to it than I do. There are things he said take. that make me more confident. Because I'm talking about like character development in season yeah. two. You know, there were things that people said, and I'm like, you know, I came out of that like well, even less enthused about the snow show purely because I don't need more of him feeling tortured over these sad deaths. Like, yeah, I get it. It's sad. Sorry, but um, my take. It makes me more excited, not so much because I want to see more torture Jon Snow, 
But because I'd rather see more torture Jon Snow and or whatever character development is under that umbrella than just a bunch of sword battles or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't really care about a just action fighting stuff. I guess that's what it was, was for me. Was it was no addition drama, by subtraction. So. Like he's yeah. not focused on the action, which that is a plus for me. For like me, it's I was not like, that I don't he's know going to world. focus on what you said. I guess to me, I just like, there was no world in which this could ever be like a really action focused show. Like to me, it's after the action has, has happened. So it had to be like a kind of staid, sad character piece. Like type of thing was my take on it. I, I never saw it that way. I don't think that they would be like, I, I was, there's going to be some action. Like no, any instance, any version of the show is going to have sword fighting and, and battles. Like maybe not a lot, but it's yeah, I'm pretty sure it's being very little of it, which is why I think people would be okay. very underwhelmed. Cause I just, I, that's not the take on, on the story that I, I've anticipated. Well, since we're getting started on it, let's just continue with this regarding why I think this no show is going to happen. And there's a couple of things he said for one thing, and it's, but it's more about the state of the industry. Yes. He said things like what a share is bringing up there. He said things like the fa- my favorite version of Jon Snow was season two. That's what J- Kit said. He's like, I liked it more when they were focused on character development. He said, we kind of lost that a bit as the show went on. He backtracked. He's like, yeah, he, he went, he was diplomatic. He's like, yeah, I understand why we had to do that. We set things up and you move on with the story to move the plot forward. But he liked it more when there were, scenes that didn't move the plot that were just more about character development. And uh, it's like, okay, that that's good. You know, I can hear what Ashe is saying. If they're just all a bunch of rehashing trauma, then that that would be boring too. But it, but you would want that mixed in because otherwise it's unrealistic. Like John has to deal with that. It can't just be erased from him. I mean, there's a million movies that are very similar con- in concept and they're, you know, that it's but just like... But that's a movie, right? That's two hours and it's done. We're talking about it. You can't base a whole show on that, can I you? still also am picturing my guess for this has been kind of a limited series, mini series type run. Again, this is just... I'm sure. just We're yeah, talking about what our, our take is on it. And my take was kind of like a very character focused, like man up in the wilderness, like kind of show, which I have seen many movies that are very similar, and it's the vibe that I expect. And again, it could be the opposite thing. It's yeah. Jon Snow's crazy adventure to Essos. Like, I don't know. I like, might be making fewer you know, assumptions about what the show is going like, to be I, like. That, that's my that point, point is that it, I'm yeah. making certain assumptions about what it is, and the Kit, Kit Harrington speaking on it kind of confirmed those assumptions to me. But he didn't really speak on it. He spoke on Jon Snow. I mean, yeah, that, but that, that's my point. Is that but, if but, he's that, but, but that doesn't tell us what would the plot would be. He's just talking about what the character's state of mind is. That doesn't it, at all speak to us what the plot is. What this, impl- you're, you're, I'm realizing it implies I'm realizing I'm realizing assumptions I had that I hadn't delineated yeah. just just right now, yes. right? And it, I, I I'm not so sure how I think Jon Snow would be the central character. But I don't know if he'll be the main character. I still think it might be an ensemble cast. It might jump around between different groups and, and locations. Because the North is really big. And there are a lot of factions of wildlings. And I can free imagine folk. that might be... Come on now. <laughs> Come on, Sean. Free, yeah, sorry. Free folk. And that might be the crux of things is them resettling and reorganizing and being in conflict over borders and, I don't know, land rights and... Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I can see that I could see us jumping from different tribes up north and you know john just being one of six different leaders or locations or whatever that interact in different ways through the course of it also i didn't consider that it might just be like one six episode season rather than like six seasons of 10 episodes each so yeah i, I don't know yeah uh, that's why i'm it, cautious about so making potential. too many specific predictions about what the show's gonna yeah. be like i think that's like, the I just fun of it though right Making huh? it, making predictions is kind of the fun of talking about it. No, no, like, no, I agree. You know. I just think we can't be yeah. t- take them as like this as a certainty. I think we just be careful about yeah. expected, that's expectations. Yeah. That's all. I'm making predictions is 
Making predictions is the fun of it, yeah. but don't ruin the fun by thinking it's all just going to be more but John Snow. Yeah, about. that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's my point, true. Like, let's might, not be yeah. too sure. My mm-hmm. point is we're talking about what we took out of these panels and out of hearing mm-hmm. about like mm-hmm. the, the stories from it. And my take is, oh, it's about what I expected from it. I, there was nothing that is going like extremely surprising or he's talking about like, other characters or other... I, I don't know. There was nothing surprising. And and that's my take is that you had a different well, uh, uh, yeah, impression I, I added, of what it I could didn't, be. I think I didn't... It was, it was different in that I think that I was more thinking about whether the show's going to happen and less about what it's going to oh, be like. okay. That okay. was my focus on whether it's actually going to happen. I don't know what it... Because to me, what it's going to look like is... We have no idea. Like, I, your guesses are good, but they're just... But they are just guesses. It could be... Like you said, it could be entirely different. Like, I don't predict... Like you said, like him running off to Essos. Like that seems super seems unlikely. very unlikely. But there's, there's so many possibilities that we just couldn't possibly guess. And I'm just like, I'm not even going to try to guess because it's just, are they going to include I'll try. people? Yeah, are like, are they going to include Sansa? Are they going to include Tormund? Are they going to include Brienne? Are they going to yeah. include a million characters? Like, I mean, who, that's, that's the fun of it. Heck, I think no. Arya? That like, is fun, but we have you know. no basis for whether uh, whether those guesses yeah. have any basis in reality or that they're just pure guesses or not. So that's why but I we, was thinking we, more about the possibility of the show and not about what it would look like. Yeah, we do have good information to speculate on the likelihood of it happening. Right. Right. Because that is the thing that's out there right now. Rumors and, and stuff. And I want to try to like set the record straight. I also want to do what Ashea did and Sean did and bring up like what we think about it. But my perspective is about whether it's going to happen or not, which is... But you think it's going to happen? I mean, to me, that seems like pretty straightforward, right? Well, the reasons why though aren't, though, I don't think, because these are like none of the, like several things we learned at this convention I did not think about before. And some of these are very new changes, like the changes in the industry. Over the last few months, y'all, we've seen a lot of shows get canceled. A lot of the streaming wars have been backing down. Like a lot of these big companies went into debt creating new content and they're backing off. They're slowing down. How does that impact the snow show? I think it makes it more likely in some ways, less than others. Like if they're just making less content, then the tide is, it's not sort of the opposite of the rising tide lifts all boats. The lowering tide lowers all boats. But if they're going to make their, but what they've said is a lot of these franchises, a lot of these studios have indicated that they're moving away from, they're going to take fewer risks. They're going to do things that are more sure things and things that are cheaper. Okay. So what did we just say about the snow show? It's cheaper. You could have listened to what we all three of us just said and realized. Is it really though? Yeah. Because of the battle stuff, it's not going to have bad, like every other game of Thrones show, except for maybe the animated ones will is probably going to have a bigger budget. Would yeah, require a bigger budget. The actor budgets, I guess. I just like actor like budgets those are have tiny to compared to production budgets, though. Like oh. in general, like and, and rarely do they stack up. Like Kit Harrington's pay is is a blip compared to like filming ships for Nymerius, the CGI for dragons, or flying the entire crew out to ice. Yeah, well, that's that uh-huh. that would be expensive for this, but they could maybe do something yeah, in Canada. Yeah. But still, this show is expensive. Compared to TV shows, but it's not expensive compared to other Game of Thrones projects, other prestige TV projects. Well, I guess my point was that it's, it's like intrinsically going to be more expensive than other Game of Thrones projects alone, just because any actors that they want to bring back are like they have to negotiate to bring back Gwendolyn Christie. But they Christie can just not or... bring some of them back if they're too expensive. They're not it, required. It, it also, That's why we're like, we don't know who they're going to bring back. They have that option of just kick it also and makes it, else, other people. 
it also makes it a little less risky because they're established stars. Exactly. Kid know? Harrington, like, seeing how many people showed up at that con just for him and how much he charges for autographs, HBO is going to look at that or has already looked at and, that and say... And you know if Amelia Clark had been there, it would have been... She would have been the big star. Yes. She would have been, yeah. you know... Yeah. Agree. Now, they can't bring her back for the show, I guess. But but the point is that there are other stars from the show that will get people to I mean, watch strictly speaking, it. they can bring Amelia back, Amelia Clark back for this show because this show could easily have a flashback. Like, it, like I'm just saying, True. you yeah. can't say it's impossible for them to do that. If they want to do it yeah. and they know that that'll what bring audiences in or whatever, yeah, they can have a flashback where John has a dream about him and Danny and it, a lot of people would hate it, but like straight up, they can do that. Here's another thought I just had, by the way. They might, quote unquote, save some money by using resources they've already invested in. The volume yep. for special effects <laughs> the they wall. use for House of Dragon, they could use that mm-hmm. for the Jon Snow show. Exactly. And they don't have to spend money building that. It's already built. So that might be something HBO is excited about getting more use out of that investment they made. Exactly. So that's what I'm saying. I think I think I don't disagree entirely with what Ashay is saying about the cost of actors, but I think the the other production costs far outweigh that. And they could just leave some of those actors out if they're too expensive. That can just be a budget line decision. Like, no, yeah, we can't, we like can't, can't bring in Amelia Clark. Right? She's too expensive. And What's he that? Just, he also talked about how expensive the wolves are. They're right. Which just, so they dragons. probably won't be included. The wolves probably won't be included at all. Like they probably just won't have ghosts because that's really expensive. And he, yeah, he said ghost was more expensive than dragons, which I think is, 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 is probably hard for some people to swallow, but it's I doubt fur. he was lying. It's fur. It's, it's the difference very, in fur and scales. Fur is much yeah. more complex than scales. Which does kind of make sense if you think about it. But sticking to this topic, yeah, like, so HBO looks at this. I'm look, trying to be as ruthless as they probably would be. And it's hard for me to put my mind in that space, but I think that's, that's what you got to do to think like these studio executives when they're cutting, slashing budgets left and right. If they're going to continue Game of Thrones and they don't want to take risk, out of all the shows on the list, this is the one. I hate to say it, but it is. This is the one. And maybe they'll do more than one. Yeah, then I don't know. Based on some of the fan reactions, I feel like they have to look at that as well. And fans are pretty brutal. Bottom line, know. though, more fans showed up for him than anyone else. Spent more money for him than anyone else. That's the bottom line. They look at more than than fan comments on YouTube and Twitter and stuff like that. Yeah. They do look at both. Also, for sure. Also, I, I'm making numbers up, but let's just say there are 10 million fans that are upset by the idea of a Jon Snow show. And there are 20 million fans that are excited by the idea of a Jon Snow. All right, there's still 20 million fans. Exactly. That are they don't have to please everybody. They just need enough people to watch. Like, yeah. like a bunch of people were not said they wouldn't watch House of the Dragon because they hated season eight. And then a lot of them came around. Yeah, and you know, there's anyway. going to be hate watchers and yeah. people that get won over. If it's good, too, people yeah. will watch it. Well, people will try it anyway. And if it's good, it will continue. And, and that's another, I don't know, that's another thing they might have going for them, at least, is that they can't mess up the books they can't like right. not do what george did because it's all made up anyway yeah. so they're not as beholden or whatever but and like whether the writing yeah, is maybe that be keeps them from getting book fans yeah. to watch it so, you know pros and cons whether the writing is good or not no one can predict like we just we just have no idea even if like you could say the idea isn't great i won't disagree with that you could say the idea is great i won't disagree with that either i don't know it just really just depends on what some writer does like it's not impossible to make this a good story even if someone at HBO said, we're not doing this, they still might change your mind next year and do it. Yeah, right. yeah. HBO's changes. management could change. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, which has happened. Like that's, that's part of what happened with Blood Moon and some of these other things is like the, the, yeah. the team that, the HBO management team that came up with Blood Moon is not the team that canceled it and started House of the Dragon. I'm pretty sure. The, the management team shifted dramatically at some point. And the, the, the current head of HBO who's cutting all this content from HBO Max is another different person that, that greenlit these other shows. So I'm trying to come at that from the studio's perspective, not from the fan perspective or from 
what I want perspective. It's hard though. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Especially because I, this is a weird thought, but like what you want is a legitimate factor because you represent a, a slice of the community and they're trying to appeal to the community. Does that make sense? Yeah. So on some level, that is a factor. You know? Like we're not the, the people, like there were a lot of people who loved season eight. Like in our corner of the fandom, that's a minority. There are people, and I'm not saying that everyone else hated it. There's, there's, there's room between loved it and hated it. Like there's plenty yeah. of people that were just like, ah, it was fine. You know, I mean, like, ah, it was okay. You know, there's, there's plenty of range of feelings in there. We have to remember that HBO season eight has been watched a ton of times. It was still a success for HBO. Yes. It was not a critical success, success, but they made a ton of money on it. I mean, it was critical success too. They won like thirty Emmys. Yeah, you're right. It was in a way. It was, it was not know, a critical, critical success, success yeah. exactly. But you're right. Like it's, yeah. you could. You, there's there's plenty of arguments that look this bottom line. They they won a bunch of awards and they can. That's going to be remembered more in twenty years than yes than our than some gripey fans. Yeah, the IMD ratings are still there. <laughs> there's still there's still evidence yeah, yeah. of the disappointment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the reality. I think that mm-hmm. is outside of our scope a lot of times. Are. Nobody knows. Who knows how much that might change when Martin finishes the books? You know, like if some of the stuff in the books lines up to season eight a little bit more, people might reevaluate it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll keep our ear to the the grapevine and there'll be more things. A couple other things he said, though, that made me think more like he was thinking about it was that he talked about during his panel, he talked about it wasn't even a question he was asked. He just vamped and started talking about other things related to production. He talked about how much he's learned about other aspects of production, about like other side of the camera and building sets and all this stuff. It's like, you're talking about showrunner stuff, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that, which might feed into what you guys are hoping for, which is that if he's a sh- part showrunner, is he going to be like also like, super front and center all the time character if he's also the show, maybe i mean he could but maybe he's gonna just be like you said the most famous part of an ensemble cast i would i think we would all prefer that but yeah i would us. prefer the latter i see more of the former i agree i, I think it's more likely more to be the former. former i do agree with you um, for the same reasons that they would want to support the show is because they would build on his existing popularity so they would want to make it more about him. But that, so I agree with you there for sure. Cause that's, that's follow, that's a follow the money, you know, <laughs> type reason there, logic. Yeah, I mean, I mean he's, he's talking about how he wishes he was the one who was on the throne. He wishes he was the one who did the Night King. I think he wants more of Jon Snow. Like it just, yeah. it does seem like he wants like to be front and center. He likes the character. Yeah, he yeah. likes the character. He's talking about what a good guy John was and how he, you know, he doesn't feel like he can be as good as John is. And that was a really interesting thing he said, isn't it? He said it, it, it made him struggle a little bit. And this is something that we've heard from a lot of actors. They say that it's easier to play bad guys. Several of them said they would be Ramsey if they could have been anyone else. Multiple of them this weekend said that. And I think this goes, those two things go together. Kit was like, yeah, it's hard to be a really good character because then you compare him to yourself and you're like, I'm not, as good, I'm not a good person compared to Jon Snow. And it makes it was like, ah, I need to be a better person. But if you're Ramsey, you're like, ah, I'm way better than this guy. <laughs> like, no problem here. <laughs> I see here Dornish Dame says that he was a producer before on Gunpowder, which he developed. So he'd also had some producing. Wait, uh, who? Kit Herring. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah. He also revealed that Benioff used to say fewer, correct him when he would say less rather than fewer, just like Stannis. <laughs> that, that came from Benioff. He also said he's so close with Amelia Clark and Ben Crompton, who's... Dollar is head. Dollar is head, yeah. So, yeah. He also doesn't really understand the, the phrase, you know nothing. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Because <laughs> he knows nothing. That's because he knows yeah, nothing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so some of the stuff we didn't get to, I didn't get to get to the group questions, but we've gone pretty long today. So I'll post those on our social media. That'll be a good place for them. So follow us on, come to Discord or Facebook, and it'll be on both of those spots. I'll post a, a thread on both of them about yeah. the, the stuff that we weren't able to get to. Answer any more questions that y'all might have related to I also to have my, my live tweet threads where I covered these pretty thoroughly. Those were good. Yeah, Shay's live tweets were awesome. I, I highly recommend you follow at Mirani's Not for future conventions. She does this pretty much every time. It's a really good way to get things while they're happening. This podcast recap is a good way to get a summary of it all, but you want to be in the moment and get like the live takes and, and see photos that are while it's happening. Yeah, her Twitter is a great follow for that reason and other reasons, but we're highlighting the con reason today. Yeah. Yeah, if you want to... My Twitter is yeah, an usually okay it's follow like, yeah, for those If you want to see History Westeros when we're on the ground doing a thing, usually you want to follow me on Instagram and on Twitter because I'm the one who uh, is updating social media on Instagram and Twitter. She's our live person. Yeah, the, just like now. I'm our, li- I'm our production person for live streaming too. So true. It's, it's, uh, Very true. Yeah, anyways, Shay live. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, I, and, I, and I'm always like, oh, I should tweet this as Westeros history, but it's hard to switch Twitter. Pro- you know, it's just such a hassle yeah. to switch. I just re- retweet them from our account. Yeah, anyways, yeah, if fine. you're wondering yeah. why it's not as Westeros history, it's because it's hard to switch. Yeah. Our trivia question, the beginning of the episode, I asked you all who... Or what did Jon Snow say the maximum capacity at Castle Black was in his mind? Of course, it's not some official number. Maybe he doesn't know for sure. It's not like they they may not have had counts at all times. Still, he cited a number, and that's what we're going with. And that number was... 5,000? Yes! Oh, 5,000. So you know, wow, good Sean one, Sean. By the way, that was not from memory. That was just my estimation what I thought really? Castle Black could hold. Yeah. 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 You nailed it. We did get some people who had guessed at the beginning of the episode correctly. Cool, cool. We'll be back next week with more, uh, more of a regular quote-unquote episode, one more in line with our usual where we're deep diving on a topic. It'll be voted on by our patrons as usual. If you want more on Ryan Condot, don't forget we did an interview with him from early in the season, and it might be worth listening to, re-listening to if you've already heard it or just listening to if you haven't, because he talks about some things that have now come to roost. Like, he talked about how Aegon II was his favorite character. Yeah, because we like, pathos. Yeah, we said. were really surprised at that. And we said, we'll have to check back after that. Now we've seen Aegon II, and, and we're like, okay, I kind of get where you're coming from. He is kind of interesting, even though he's He's obviously not someone you admire, but the performance you could admire, the the writing you could admire, and the yeah, it's interesting, very nuanced there. So hopefully, all hopefully you all enjoyed our nice long report on this con. There were, like I said, there's some things we didn't get to, so check our social media for the the wrap up on that. I want to leave you all with one really fun anecdote that was a highlight this weekend. Something that reflects well on Kit Harrington, I thought. This, the guy who won the costume contest with his partner, who we call Con Snow, his real name is Zach. He got to ask Kit a question, which was hard to do because people started lining up like right away to ask him questions. Before he was even on the stage, people were lining up to ask him. Before they've said, y'all can start lining up now, people were lining up. And he goes, hey, Kit. And, and Kit looks and he goes, oh, hey, John. Because <laughs> he's... <laughs> he looks like him. And then like five minutes later, after after he asked his question, they did their thing and he's like, moves on to another subject. He's talking about Michelle Clapton who does the costuming, right? There's another shot of, of Zach and, and his partner whose name, unfortunately, we don't Sophie. know. But Sophie, oh, really? Sophie, I know her she's, name. Her name is Sophie, really? Yeah. That's amazing. A redhead named Sophie and she's she's dressed <laughs> up as... as uh, oh, yeah, I don't as, want to get Johnson's yeah, yeah. Probably From the not North. real hair, yeah. but, but still. Uh, anyway, he says... Someone asked 
Kit, what was his favorite outfit? Because Michelle Clapton is the costumer, right? So he's so in relation to that, he's like, what's your favorite outfit that Jon Snow wore throughout the season? He goes, oh, I like that. I rather like that brown long tabard, the one that the one that Khan was wearing. <laughs> <laughs> so Zach got shouted out a couple times. Gotta love that. We've been we've been seeing him at Khan's for a long time. It's always great to hang out with. Good dude. Always. Always getting people confused. Like, is that Kit Harrington? <laughs> Never gets old. Anyway, folks, yes, thank you very much for attending. Thanks if you showed up live to watch. We appreciate the live support. We also appreciate if you support us on Patreon or Spotify, sign up, sponsorship. Give us a recurring donation every month to get yourself some bonus episodes. A little for you, a little for us. Everybody wins. Yeah, and we hope we'll see you at this year's Ice and Fire Con, the last weekend of April in Ohio. It's been a minute since we brought it up, but after going to this convention, it's on my mind. I'm really excited to see all of our friends and meet new friends. And uh, yeah, you can look that up there. You can use you can use us as a referral, and I think you get a little like five dollar off or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it, it, I believe it's still our code is still history. And you can use that code at checkout for that benefit. If not, just contact us and we'll make sure that gets sorted out. But yeah, like I said at the beginning of the episode, we only have one other week off until Ice and Fire Con that planned. Maybe something yeah, it come up, might come up. I hope not. But you know. That's, that's the end of April. So you're going to see a nice long string of episodes from us with deep dives on a lot of variety of topics, mostly book stuff, but definitely some show stuff mixed in there. Some that's a little of both. Can't wait to get, get that going again. We're here as we approach the end of the year and head into 2023. Future is still very bright, y'all. Whether any shows happen or not, we've got so much to talk about. Yeah, we'll next see you on Christmas Day. Yeah. We'll be streaming. And then on New Year's Day, we'll be streaming. And then we'll have a week off for convention. Yep. But uh, yeah, we'll see you on Christmas. <laughs> or just any you other may day. may not see summer. me on Christmas, yeah, maybe but no I'll be show. there on New Year's. Cool. Yeah, Sean has better things to do on Christmas to spend it with you. Uh, we don't. We That's got, right. We don't. We don't have any. No one loves us. We'll just be home all we, alone on know. Christmas. Better live stream. Yeah. You know. yeah so we'll, we'll be... No, just kidding, folks. We just like live streaming and it falls on a Sunday. So we'll just yeah, keep we're, we're not really big Christmas. We're, don't, don't worry about us. We're yeah. not... We're not really feeling like we're missing out on Christmas. But we this will is, enjoy yeah. sharing it with those of you all yeah, who attend yeah, the live yeah, stream. Exactly. So that'll be it, fun. It'll be fun. You all will be our Christmas family. Yeah, exactly. Don't feel sorry for us. We've chosen this life for us. So yeah, I don't feel <laughs> That's bad. That's right. I've even got red and green dragons here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll have, to, I'll have to get you like a Santa hat or something to wear on the episode of these. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Ho, 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 door. Mm-hmm. Oh, just a last question. Are we going back to Valerie Redis, A World of Ice and Fire? The world Probably not A fire. World of Ice and Fire, but we are doing we're gonna do, we're doing topics that are similar to that, but we but as we moved forward on Valor Redis, we weren't really for World of Ice and Fire. We were really just taking using it as a jumping off point. So we don't need the World of Ice and Fire to do a similar style episode, like the Trouble with Tourney's episode could have been called a Valor Redis episode, but it was really just we were sourcing things from all over. It's not really necessary to use that title. That said, we are going to do Valor Redis for Fire and Blood at least part of the way through, at least for some sections of that. So we were thinking of starting that in the new year, but I think we're going to wait a little bit longer on that, but not a whole lot longer. Might be a Valar first read us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for, That's for true. Sure. Yes, it's <laughs> Valar read us. Yeah. But anyway, more news on that to come as well. We'll update you on the schedule as it, as it becomes more material. And as always, you can follow along either getting updates on the podcast or, or follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, or Discord. Those are the main spots. Check us out there. Also follow Sean, Dancing Sean at Twitter, on Twitter. Shea, once again, is Miranese Not. That's two E's. 
That's four that's, E's. No, that's five E's. That's, well, two double E's, one single E. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Marie's not an easy word to spell. But, you know, you'll find your way there. <laughs> I'm here and he's not with with five E's. So many E's. I don't know how many, how many E's are in this thing, man. I no, don't wait, know. I said that wrong. There's six E's. My ah, bad. see? I she doesn't even right. know. There's six E's. Okay, ignore that. Cut <laughs> that, cut that, cut that. Okay. We need have. When you have that many E's in a row, it's A. Hey. Hey. Yeah. That's right. Well, right. we'll see you next week yeah. for more. <laughs> hey. okay. Goodbye, everyone. Valar rewatches and Valar rereads. <laughs>